0: When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef,
1: what course are we on?
0: Bet the
1: board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't... Yeah, I don't... I never have, and I never will. Yeah, right. I'll bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the
0: day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where
2: I started. I could still pick winners, and i could still make money for all kinds of people back home and why mess up a good thing here's pain insider and todd
1: Furman. welcome into the the board podcast second annual summer send off edition plenty of great content on the docket today talking all things legalization World Cup, some Belmont, NBA, NHL, and we'll have a tremendous guest to break down all things international football. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of this fine podcast, I want to bring in my co-host, as we always do. I am, of course, Todd Furman. He is the one, the only Pain Insider. Payne, it's been a few weeks since uh, we broke down the Kentucky Derby, and all of a sudden it's a much different sports betting landscape across this fine country.
2: A lot has changed. And I noticed you mentioned hockey. Oof.
1: Well, I mean, I at least have to uh, kind of give a eulogy for the Golden Knights season that's going to come to an end either Thursday night in Game 5 or over the weekend in Game 6. It's been one hell of a run out here in the desert, something I don't think anybody thought the team could accomplish. Uh, But like all great storylines in sports, they don't always end with a happy ending.
2: The Knights are going to have to get off to a hot start there.
1: I mean, the uh, front-running fair-weather fans that you have out here in Vegas, if the Caps get the first goal, uh, it'll take the air out of the building. We've seen ticket prices substantially depressed from what we saw Game 1 and Game 2, but I don't want to turn off our listeners by talking hockey and bog everybody down. So We mentioned the World Cup on the right. We'll just do that
2: at the end of the podcast. Yeah,
1: exactly. We'll get to that at the end of the podcast. We'll just have you tune out at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. So, World Cup, uh, we have a tremendous guest that's joining us uh, from We Love Betting, Mark O'Hare, who I think a lot of our listeners will be thoroughly impressed with uh, as he breaks down the field there but even before we talk anything sports related i know you've received a lot of questions whether through email twitter uh, some of your media contacts the same way i have all about legalization and when it comes to making knee-jerk reactions i think you and i probably do it better than anybody else in the industry we're much more cerebral we like to think about these things before we're going to share our opinions in a public forum
2: I would concur. I think everything, right? You take a step back, you take a deep breath, you remove the emotion from it, you try to think how it's going to play out and how it may benefit or hinder you, specifically... Uh, and then you kind of make your informed decisions from there. And this is actually perfect timing, actually with Delaware going live yesterday at one thirty p.m.
1: Just just like we planned it. I mean, we knew that Delaware <laughs> was going to go live on June 5th, and we were going to put together a podcast on June 6th, so we had the perfect timing to try and comment on some things. It has been fascinating to see the response, not only through social media and some of the more prominent sports business reporters and those folks covering the industry, uh, but also the politicians in Delaware and how they're trying to temper some of the expectations that I think we knew were Going to be out there that you open up the floodgates for sports betting. It's not necessarily a license to print money when you talk about a four and a half to five percent historical hold uh, in traditional straight wagers.
2: You would know a lot more about this avenue and what they're looking for business wise. I was a little concerned with how they were going to run things, and I still think it's going to be state by state, right? Um, But when you have a state like Delaware, who's used to the lottery, who's used to the three team parlays and a 40 percent hold and and whatnot, this is going to be a little different uh, from what they've been dealing. Now, I haven't seen or heard a ton from there, but they are dealing 20 cent baseball lines. Um, They were a little unorganized from what I was told yesterday. Lines were through the roof despite having 10 plus tellers, none of the kiosks were set up and that will be interesting And right? I think- the kiosk portion of that because we got to be careful um, how we talk about certain people but William Hill obviously I think is running the show there I think from a perspective of their model it's easiest to set up using Will Hill right it's, it's going to be kind of ABC um, it's semi-profitable Um, It's not going to be run like a pinnacle, obviously, right? That requires a ton of talent (laughs) at your shop to run a book like that. So it's going to be one of those flip switch type, you know, uh, operators. For me, though, I'm hearing, and and you're going to know better than this, there's issues with certain people betting at Will Hill, for sure. I have heard $1,000 limit without a card but the kiosk thing is interesting to me. How how, how can you monitor that, I guess? Is, well, there's
1: the so question. many different checks and balances. And as you mentioned, every state is going to handle sports betting differently, which is going to lead to its own variety of uh, questions, concerns, execution or what have you. But the kiosk concept is interesting and it's kind of gained some popularity out here. I'd say in the last three to five years. You can bet smaller denominations there. You can typically go up there and rebet over and over again. Ultimately right. the games <laughs> will kind of cap out. But it's not one of those things that you're going to just be able to go hundred bucks, hundred bucks and put down you know five to ten thousand dollars in that type of setup. You mentioned the limits and I think that's going to be fascinating to see how everybody handles it because the way it works in Delaware, which is going to be different than other states, is the state Lottery has commissioned William Hill to kind of be their risk managers. So when you look at Delaware and the breakdown of the economics, there's essentially three different mouths to feed from it. It's the Delaware Lottery, It's going to be the racetracks themselves, the horsemen and whatnot, get a piece of it, the technology provider, which I believe is Stadium Tech. So there's so many moving pieces that are going to factor into a state like that. Now, when New Jersey and Mississippi come on board, which appear to be the two states most likely to get all of this stuff done and taken care of before football season, then you're talking about something more in tune with what you see in Nevada, where you'll have your MGMs of the world, your Caesars, and some of your other big box casino operators looking to handle things from you know within. They're going to have their own risk management, however they elect to construct that, their own frontline staff, and try and create that Vegas-style experience with tax rates and everything else that are commensurate with it instead of going the third-party route. And that may be a little bit more telling sign, but I think, paying honestly, for all of this to take hold and to be effective and to realize the revenue potential and the large numbers that everybody has thrown out there... All these states have to figure out a mobile component because without mobile, I mean, you're talking about getting one one-hundredth a piece of the pie, uh, especially in a state like New Jersey where your population centers are a far cry from some of these racetracks uh, where you'll have betting, and especially Atlantic City, that you're going to limit some of the upside and revenue-generating potential for the operators.
2: So two things to what you just said. The first, uh, Caesars feels ripe because they have casinos it, it's caesars hair, right? So they have shops set up all over right now, all over the United States. So it's basically just, what, getting a sports book up and running there, maybe even just not what your full potential sports book would be, but something just to get up and ready in time for football. And I think the second thing is, Mobile, you nailed that. I I talked to some of these books out your way, and they're saying – up to 65% of their handle right now is going through mobile platforms. So how far away do you think mobile is for some of these places?
1: I think mobile is going to take a little bit longer just because there's some, excuse me, a number of differences that they're going to have to try and address there. So the goal for some of these states is, hey, we just want to be first to market. And I think that's part of why Delaware pushed so hard. They realize that there's going to be increased competition in the area from New Jersey, from Pennsylvania, which is a different case in and of itself, uh, and Maryland somewhere on down the road. Uh, But I think, you know, New Jersey and Mississippi that have had slightly more progressive gaming commissions uh, and more favorable tax rates, they're no dummies. They realize how quickly those components have to go, and I think that's part of the reason that New Jersey initially said, hey, we're going to start taking bets on the NBA Finals, that they haven't moved so fast. They'd rather do it once and do it the right way rather than kind of piecemeal stuff together and have to push through separate bills. You do have a number of casino operators who want to make sure that maybe they can buy themselves time. If it's 30 days, 60 days, what have you, because they want to have the right people in place they want to be able to create a good customer experience because there's going to be nothing worse if you run the market in the dog days of summer in July to get a World Cup better in there They come to Atlantic City. They go, you know what? I had a miserable experience. I'm not coming back for football season. I don't want to deal with this headache. I don't want to try and get involved. And it ends up being one of those things where you cut off your nose to spite your face. So mobile's coming. I think it's going to take a little bit longer. And some of these states also have to try and figure out where they're going to be able to take action. I think what's lost in Delaware... There's no provision right now for college football or college basketball. So it's professional sports, mainly the four big box, the World Cup, and auto racing. And auto racing is very compelling, not so much because the handle it's going to do, but you have a prominent racetrack in Dover where you're going to have a playoff race come the fall attached to a track. I'm very curious to see what kind of race handle they do uh, for that particular weekend.
2: I saw the clauses on on the bottom of their sheets about the college football wagering and college athletic wagering and all that stuff. That was interesting to see. Um, I think the next question, and, and you're good to answer this, and I know we've gone back and forth via text and we think slightly differently on this topic, but impact on Vegas.
1: I'm of the mindset that it's not going to fundamentally change what happens here. Now, maybe you'll see a slight tick down in overall numbers, Um, But I'd have to imagine from some of the traditional operators that are going to have a presence in other states, they're not going to lose sleep over it. Because what's the difference if you take a sports bet into one risk management pool if you're MGM and it comes in from Atlantic City or it comes in from one of your properties in Nevada? Now, maybe around big sporting events, Super Bowl, NCAA tournament, Kentucky Derby, what have you, you see a slight decline in visitation and some of the ancillary revenues that come with it. But for me personally, I'm not of the mindset that it's going to have a material impact on the overall race and sports business out here. I do think it's important for Vegas to try and figure out how they can stay ahead uh, when it comes to some of those other travel amenities that are out there and not see an overall decline in gross gaming revenue, like they've seen when you had local casinos popping up through every metropolitan you know area across this country. See, that's a good
2: different uh, you differentiating that because big box versus standalone. Right, if you're an MGM or you're a Caesars and and I follow the stock market, I follow pretty much any market, and Caesar's stock has gone through the roof with this. So I don't think they're gonna be in that mix, but if you're not a big box, I think eventually you will see a percentage of your pie gone. Right? Like I know a lot of people have this idea of Vegas and how great it is and all these things. And there's this there still isn't a lore there, it's still nicer than than AC. But any percentage of your pie getting chopped is a percentage you're missing, right? And I think that's going to hurt. And I think day one, what does it look like? Is it 1% or 2%? Two years from now, is it 5%? Six years from now, is it 20%? Like there is a slice of that pie getting taken out. And when I always look at stocks, I try to find the human factor within them, right? I kind of put myself in the shoes of a human being and say, hey, how would this stock change when humans interact like they usually would? And so I think when you're getting that bachelor party right, for the weekend, are you going to want to spend 11 plus hours in the air um, at an airport of your 48 hour trip going to Vegas? Are you going to want to take that hour trip up to AC? Um, The guy that lives in Mobile, Alabama, and he can drive an hour to Biloxi and he's able to do that. It's an option to do that once a week. Is he going to need that that uh, itch scratched to where he's that biannual trip to, to Vegas is still happening? Those are the kind of things that I think you have to factor in from a human perspective. Like I can't see someone who plans that trip every single year for Vegas because they don't have an option. Now has the option to do it every single weekend if he wanted to. Those are the kind of people you're going to be missing in Vegas, I think.
1: And I think it's going to be interesting to see how some of these other cities, and it's not going to be the standalone racetracks, but it's the Biloxis, it's the Tunicas, it's the Atlantic Cities, and what the increased potential visitation does. Does it mean more nightclubs? Does it mean better restaurants are coming back to these casinos? Does it mean better strip clubs to try and highlight some of the issues and some of the concerns you could potentially have for those bachelor parties or those larger groups that may have gravitated towards coming to Vegas with using sports betting as the primary driver. And I don't think anybody can really put together a comprehensive analysis, at least in my opinion right now, but there there have to be discussions going on behind closed doors and some concerns whether or not forward-facing how everyone wants indicated. indicate it. I just figured when you were talking about stocks and the human element, we were going to get a three- to five-minute full Bobby <laughs> Axelrod-type rant out of you about where <laughs> the opportunities might be in the market for all of us to benefit off gaming-related stocks in that particular sector.
2: Uh. I think there are a few, but this is so interesting to me. I think there's probably someone going to be more sophisticated along the way in the next handful of years, a company that's probably not even created at this point. That could take a huge market share. I've looked into a lot of the technology stock behind these operators, and some of them are just plain crap. I would think someone is really smart enough to probably build something that's used 10 years from now that doesn't really exist right now.
1: Not going to disagree. So that, I think European yeah. o- European operators and those platforms are light years ahead. Uh, of anything that's really been built here domestically. And I know you and I have talked at great lengths about what's stopping big data companies ultimately when restrictions loosen across these states and they don't tell you have to have an established casino presence or to stop the DraftKings and the FanDuel's from partnering up with the Verizons, the Googles, the Facebooks to try and create these marketplaces where you have a lot more money changing hands. You can charge less in the commission and almost coming up with an exchange type betting model if that was going to work. But there's a number of things as we look at the next 6 to 12 months, the landscape's going to change over the next 3 to 5 years, 5 to 10, and if we sit here and have this discussion on a summer send-off podcast in 2033, what legalization is going to have meant to this country and how some of the primary players and operators are very different than we ever anticipated.
2: That's the one, and I've been huge in Facebook for a while now. Uh, I know a lot of people were scared off after the Zuckerberg testimonies a couple I don't know, shit, it was probably a month ago now and you could see the stock dropping from like 155 down into the 130s and everyone's panicked and I think a lot of savvy people were buying in at that point because it's jumped back. But I remember Zuckerberg saying like, hey, we're we're built and ready to go for gambling. They tried to implement something with poker and casinos like two or three years ago and then kind of got their hand slapped by government and they kind of went away. But the platform's built and I know that's why a lot of people... Savvy people were investing in Facebook, not because like your 60-year-old mother's going through menopause is on there eight hours a day. It's it's because <laughs> some of the technology they have with potentially getting into gambling. That's going to be the best thing. If that if that happens where Google and Facebook get involved, then you're talking about Google, right? Having like 2 billion users a month and you might be able to get dealt minus 103, I mean, competi- um, that would be competition is going to be huge for this.
1: That's what I was going to say. Competition is good. I think it, you know, segues perfectly into some of the discussions that you guys have had. You know, more on the betting side than some of the operators? I mean, what are your expectations about softer potential lines, more outs, or do you think there's less variety because you're going to have a monopoly? And you mentioned Delaware going to 20-cent baseball lines. There are casino operators out here in Nevada that already employ that tactic, but we could be looking at, do we hope a better market for betters, or is the general consensus amongst uh, your groups and all the guys that you talk to in the know that, you know what, we're not as optimistic. We're going to kind of take a wait-and-see approach.
2: So initially not as happy as most, right? It, it became a, a celebratory day for the entire social media world that was in gambling. It was like, this is going to be awesome. And we're just like, man, this this could stink a little bit here. Especially when you talk about the operators that are poised to have a stronghold on the market. Now, relationships are always key. Uh, you can have relationships with a nice sports book manager and, and get your way. Um, but certainly, like the limit restrictions hurt a little bit. But overall, I think if here's the biggest thing, and I, I don't know if I want to even get out there and say this, but like Delaware, as as we alluded to uh, between me and you, isn't going to be on the screen. Yeah, right? that, they're not going to be on the Don nope. screen. They're right. going to be dealing a different line than uh, what William Hill is going to be dealing to the rest of the world. So stuff like that hurts a little bit. I think. They're not going to want to deal to a certain type of better. Now, that said, with all these options now opening, uh, the fastest growing job in the United States might be the runner. <laughs> 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 because I mean, you're going to be able to potshot all of these guys for for a nickel, for 750 I think. Um, so they could be beneficial there. Now, if all these companies go on the screen, like an MGM, like a Caesars, and you have casinos operating in the tri-state area, you might be able to, if you're in Vegas or you're in another state, be able to get better lines where they're going to have to artificially inflate you know, the Eagles or the Giants or the Jets, things of that nature. Um, and and when there's more unsophisticated money in a market there's opportunity there for sure it's just a matter of navigating the setups which is a little bit scary the other aspect of this is you know let's not sugarcoat this I know we don't want to we want to deliver good content it does hurt you know you always want to kind of be PC and not ruin some of your options but the reality of this is what does it do to the local bookmaker and how does that affect professional bettors right and that's the semi scary part to this is you would think once it becomes legalized states are going to really crack down on the local bookmaker what does that look like does it suddenly become a felony what, what does that look like right so a lot of those shops are going to get shut down obviously like you know the mob run ones they're, they're going to still operate but like the guy who's running one out of his bar and it's 20% of his business is he taking the risk running that book to have his bar shut down Likely not. Those are the kind of local bookmakers that are going to be going away because of this. So that hinders some some options for outs as well from the professional better standpoint.
1: I think the dynamics are going to change quite a bit. I mean, when you look at the European marketplace, I don't think there's an awful lot of discussion about the corner bookmaker there. I know other jurisdictions do everything they can to try and crack down on those guys, and if it's not your primary source of revenue, do you want to deal with the headaches and having law enforcement breathing down your neck with the potential implications from there? You mentioned how some your of the... PC cons-
2: corporate guy, you said that much nicer than I did. Much cleaner.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, when you think about this and all the unintended consequences, it's a term in business that, you know, you could have the best laid plans. You could think you have everything mapped out perfectly uh, and it's the things that we don't think about and, and how it'll ultimately come back to rear its ugly head so you mentioned right, runners- that
2: conversation right that conversation initially when you talk about that local bookmaker like everyone's initially talking hey well the player isn't going to gravitate away from not having to post up versus posting up certainly that's, that's something to think about but it's just a matter of deeper thinking and saying damn that whole operation Might just go away because the guy running it doesn't think it's it's worth losing a bar, losing another sector of his job for this small percentage running book, right? It's more than hey, uh, post up versus not post up.
1: Well, and I also think there, you know, whether we want to address it or not, there is a pretty large contingent of individuals that have shied away from sports gambling in a greater capacity because they do have a sensitivity, or they're a little bit more concerned about working with a corner bookmaker or some of the potential options that are there where, you know, money isn't going to be an issue. They're not worried about posting up while we talk about the attractiveness of credit all the time, but there are plenty of folks with large dollars who stand to lose a lot more dealing with a corner bookmaker that now may want to put money in these accounts and play through regulated operations and never have to go through some of the issues that I think pain, you know, maybe all of our listeners haven't dealt with before, but trying to get paid. I mean, we always hear stories, and you do growing up, about the bookie knocking on your door trying to collect from the deadbeat better. There are as many deadbeat bookies out there that want to take six to nine months, if that, to try and pay off their customers if you're consistently finding an edge.
2: I heard you did pretty well there, though.
1: Yeah. I mean, things, t- things, you got, things worked you got, uh, out. Uh, you had you, some muscle there. Yeah, you, you know, you know, the right people, <laughs> things tend to work out in your favor from time to time. there you, well. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, and, and I mean, we talk about some of these States and you know, certain ones are going to come online faster than others. I think we're talking about 30 plus States. If you believe some of the high level studies that have been done over the next three to five years and what the market's going to look like state to state. I mean, Pennsylvania, could be very different than what you're going to see in New Jersey or New York and my running joke is I wanted to get on the phone and try and see how I could buy bar space in Hoboken New Jersey if I'm going to have a mass exodus of New Yorkers trying to come across the bridge on Saturdays and Sundays during college and pro football season to be able to bet and I think you know, part of it is how does the DraftKings, how do the fan duels of the world play a role here? Is it gambling lounges? Where do they fit in? So many questions yet to be answered, and I'd be lying if I sat here on the podcast, tried to preach from the ivory tower and said I knew exactly how things were going to look even 60 days from now.
2: That's what I was just about to ask you. How tough is it to potentially get a license, right? Is the guy who who's running a 7-Eleven right now is he able to implement a kiosk with a license in his 7-11 is Hooters, like sports bars. Are they going to be able to set up kiosks? You know, you go to Hooters, some of them now, you can. You got the little video poker, all those things. Are they going to be able to have a kiosk set up for betting? Because that seems like it would go pretty hand-in-hand, hand, pretty easy.
1: I think you're going to find people that stay ahead, and that's what one of the things that William Hill has done so well to establish a footprint uh, in the state of Nevada. I mean, you can find their kiosk deposit and withdrawal centers in just about every truck stop. And small video poker bar throughout the state. It's not just Las Vegas. You go to Searchlight. You go to Prim. You go to what Stateline, you, you go that, to I Jean. guess.
2: I guess for this, if I'm if I'm the guy at the Seven Eleven, I own a Seven Eleven. I want a yep. betting kiosk. I need to get a license. Correct from who?
1: Um, You know what? I'm not quite sure. And this is an area I'm a little bit deficient on. I don't know if William Hill comes in. They establish uh, their safeguards and their regulations. I know they have a very strong relationship with like a (laughs) PT's pub out here that's got 30 plus locations. So I'm sure it's a level of uniformity that you're going to see in other states. Now, what it takes if I decide, hey, I want to go in this convenience store, I want to set up a relationship here. It's not just as easy as putting it in like an ATM. You have to meet gaming regs, and every state is going to be different in that regard, whether it's KYC for know your customer, whether it's anti-money laundering laws, or it's just the sight lines to be able to create that facial recognition uh, that you can handle remotely because there's nothing that a gaming gaming commission fears more than underage sports bettors, banned patrons, and the like trying to find ways to circumvent some of the checks and balances and the safeguards that they've worked so hard to put in place.
2: Yeah, this is going to be interesting. Um, I guess the next question I had for you, because you're much more – you're better at this. You're much more well-versed in this. How far, I guess, is mobile the next step and then or, – or I guess how do we compare mobile to betting in a stadium? Like how – Which one happens first? Do they happen simultaneously? Does one need to happen before the other? What do you think on that? Mobile is
1: going to happen much faster than betting in a stadium. If you're talking about potential betting lounges, like if you go into... Not just a lounge.
2: I'm I'm going to to the Miami Heat game. And while I purchase my hot dog and pretzel, I stop by the little kiosk and I can bet. Just like a European soccer game.
1: You know, some states may be a little bit different, but I can say in New Jersey, like if you're going to a Jets or Giants game, you're going to be able to bet on your mobile app uh, much faster than you're going to be able to bet... In, in a kiosk in the stadium unless something drastically changed. And I think the same could be said about Mississippi. Um, it was funny when you look at New Jersey and I think, you know, another area that people may not may or may not know you can't bet on any college teams in the state of New Jersey. So all of that Rutgers football money, if they ever experience a resurgence and Greg Schiano comes walking through the doors there or <laughs> Rutgers basketball, Seton Hall hoops, Monmouth, you name it. You can't bet any of those college programs. Mississippi obviously had a much more vested interest to put Old Miss and Mississippi State on the board. Could you imagine in Tunica if you could bet every college football program in the country but not Southern Miss, Old Miss, and Mississippi State every Saturday? You may as well not even offer legalized sports betting if that was the case. So to my knowledge, and unless something has drastically changed in the last 7 to 10 days, you'll be able to bet every college and pro sports ultimately when Mississippi gets that approved.
2: That little Biloxi-Tunica area, man, is at the Wild West. I mean, you if, probably. spent, I've never the, actually
1: set foot in Tunica or any of the casinos throughout Louisiana or Mississippi. I mean, I figure you were a junket guy back in the day. You know, in your early 20s, you had offers for you know free buffets, room nights Monday through Thursday. That you know you walk through there like Nick Papa Giorgio.
2: There is uh, there are some wild poker games that go on there, right? You think like one two no limit. You can put and you're only able to buy in for like two or three hundred, whatever it is, but you're able to back it up with a ton of cash. So you're seeing one two dollar. Pots, no limit. Thousand dollar pots because you can back it up with thousands of cash behind your chips. So it's it's the Wild West there. That's going to be an interesting interesting scene to navigate there.
1: That was always one of the things that I found funny. Like we would have calls in my Caesars days and you talk to operators and other spots. Vegas, you always figure it's the glitz and glamour. You're going to be able to pick the folks out of a lineup that are wearing, you know, the fancy suits and the designer shoes and their girlfriends and wives are carrying those, you know, expensive handbags. Maybe not quite in the LeBron James $41,000 range for handbags. But somewhere in that general vicinity, whereas in Tunica, Biloxi, you got folks coming in that may be in agriculture or any business. They may have shit on their boots and they're walking in with their $100,000 lines of credit. So it always fascinated me that you can't judge a book by its cover, uh, especially in some of these other gaming markets that are out there. Oh, it's a wild scene. I think I spent Florida-Ohio
2: State National Championship down there. So it was the big three for the Florida Gators versus Conley and Odin. I think I spent the entire week down there, and it's just a wild, wild scene. And exactly how you just painted the picture.
1: I mean, Ohio State that year shouldn't have even been in the national championship if it wasn't for some bullshit shenanigans against Xavier in what the second round. Still can't yeah, believe it. Still, they had an
2: early, an early scare.
1: Still can't believe I couldn't cash my ticket plus eight and a half plus nine. But I digress in that regard. One last thing on Pennsylvania, and then I want to get your take on another thing that'll come along with legalization and how bet the board sees itself kind of going forward, which I know a lot of uh, our listeners have shared strong opinions on uh, and we thank all of them uh, f- for doing so. When you look at Pennsylvania, this is a state that's going to be kind of a watershed moment for legalization. Their current tax structure as it stands about 35 to 40 percent. Which is one of the least favorable situations that you can have as a sports book, especially when you consider a four to six percent historical hold. There, there is a licensing fee that if any operator wants to get in there, I believe the number I've seen is ten million dollars. So you're talking hmm. about working at a loss early on. I'm going to be very curious to see which operators go, you know what, we have to be in Pennsylvania, which ones go, fuck it, we're not taking a part in anything going on there, because there are going to be other states watching with bated breath, the Missouris of the world, the Illinois with high tax rates, that go, wait, if we're not going to give cut a break for sportsbook operators or anybody of the players that are there... They're not going to come in. So I think that's going to be a battleground uh, that the casual fan won't know a whole lot about. That's going to be a telltale sign of a harbinger of things to come uh, when you look at the sports betting landscape going forward.
2: That's going to be interesting. See how this plays out.
1: Yeah, I don't think anybody wants to be walking in. There's going to be some battles
2: going on. Relationships. uh, This is relationship season. Oh, (laughs) and,
1: and we've seen a ton of it already. You've seen Churchill Downs partner with the Golden Nuggets. Uh, with the Golden Nugget in New Jersey, uh, you've seen o- Ocean City Resorts or the new casino slated to open up in Atlantic City create strategic partnerships. There are going to be a lot of moving pieces and a number of dominoes still to fall in the gambling space uh, that'll make things interesting. We, of course, can only hope that it's great from a sports betting standpoint and allow our listeners to get the best lines available. Maybe, Payne, this means we'll get first half totals come NFL season posted, you know, six to eight hours earlier before we release our Thursday podcast.
2: Man, was that adjustment scary?
1: <laughs> let let's hope that that improves but that kind of uh you know dovetails into content and what you see because i know you have strong opinions on this i do too sometimes i may have to be you mentioned the word political maybe a little bit more political uh than you in this regard i mean what are your overall thoughts because we start to see a proliferation of gambling personalities programs already when it comes to content uh, these quote unquote experts that are going to masquerade as know-it-alls or folks that can actually give you an edge and where you see maybe the network involvement, the CBS's, the Foxes, the NBCSN's, the ESPN's playing a role in either helping or hindering sports gambling going forward.
2: Well, they're all going to play a role, right? And they wanted to dip their toes in, in the water and did so for a while. And now they're going to see, hey, there's, there's opportunity to make money here. The networks are obviously going to prey on gambling, right? to line their pockets which makes sense it's a business I get it Um, who you decide to be at the top of your your gambling content department is going to be interesting I think and and I told you this years ago and it's not positive for the likes of us from this perspective it's much easier to give another task on A current employee's plate and give them a few extra bucks or expand their role to help build their own brand, then bring on and negotiate with someone else. I think at this point, and it's, you know, a lot of our listeners who are are probably more savvy than the average gambler saying, you know, this could be a, a hindrance from this perspective is who is going to be talking about sports betting, right? It's not going to be the people that are beneficial to the pockets. It's going to be I think the overwhelming majority of people getting into sports betting now they're the 98%. They're not going to be able to initially tell the difference between a former player giving his pick before the game and you're going to watch on the bottom of the screen all of them like 98% of the picks are all going to be on the overwhelming favorite. Um, But I think at some point if you're interested in sports betting you're going to find content that is better. That gets you to the window, right? Sports betting's fun. And for a lot of people, it's a hobby. It doesn't matter if they win or lose. But eventually, you keep losing your ass at something, you're going to make a concerted effort to find something that helps you win money. And I think, you know, from a long-term play, it's going to be beneficial to us.
1: Yeah, I would I would like to think so, for sure. And it's going to be interesting to see the short term bump. And as you mentioned, I mean, I've obviously had discussions with uh, multiple networks, uh, very high level in terms of where they see this ultimately playing out, how they want to do it. I've worked with some of some of the players in the market over the last couple of years, and it's always funny to see how they kind of position it. Because you can become enamored with the picks game. And I think one of the ways that we've really been able to differentiate what we do here at Bet the Board versus uh, a lot of the other podcasts out there, we like to have fun. There's no doubt about it um, when it comes down to busting balls and bringing on guests uh, that can provide a level of analysis sometimes that we can't match from an X's and O's standpoint. But I will say, Payne, we know what we know, and we know what we don't know. And today is the perfect illustration. I mean, you said as soon as I told you, Hey, I want to do a world cup podcast. I want to cover it. What was your response?
2: Am I allowed to give my real response?
1: Uh, You can give your, you can give your real response. (laughs)
2: It's like, what do you think I am here? I'm not doing that shit.
1: (laughs) And I think that, you know, in and of itself, well, people may go, Oh, you know, that's just you guys being you, but it it just reflects a greater understanding that if we're going to cover sports and there's going to be an increased appetite, go to the people who know the space. If you're looking for opinions on legalization, Go to the individuals that know what's going on. I mean, follow your David Purdams of the world that have been in the war rooms. I'm not going to claim I know exactly what the legislative landscape looks like by any stretch. I know what's fed to me. I know what I can read, but I haven't sat there through any of the Senate hearings any more than some of the people that are going to be out there sharing sports betting content have actually put down more than a few dollars. They're not betting uh, across the landscape throughout the year, whether it's NASCAR, soccer, baseball NFL college football college basketball there's certain sports that we know we know and there's certain sports we don't I can only hope pain when they start trotting on some of these personalities whoever they may be that, that we can contextualize and go, you know what, that person knows what they're talking about, this person has a demonstrated track record, and this person, quite frankly, is on there purely for entertainment. As long as the audience out there can understand, their, understand that and be able to identify who they can trust as a voice and who that they should just be viewing as entertainment value, it becomes a scary frontier for a lot of the reasons you outlined. Because you know you're going to have that three to five percent that are problem betters, and they may go to the window with reckless abandon, thinking they could trust a former player to offer insight. When in reality, uh, they're going to be get they're going to get suckered into every line that looks too good to be true out there.
2: Absolutely, that's the scariest part of this whole thing. Now, again, probably beneficial to us, the massive networks out there are are bringing light to this because eventually there'll be a trickle down effect. Right? You can only go to someone and and get betting advice for so long that loses. And I'm, again, I'm all about fun. A lot of people think this is just for fun. And if that's what you have fun doing, losing your money betting sports, power to you. It's a good hobby. But eventually, you get your ass kicked enough, betting sports isn't so fun. And we'll have that trickle-down effect. Um, The... (laughs) I joke around. You texted me something yesterday, like one of those weird texts, like, Hey, what would you make if this line was that? (laughs) And I, and I immediately fired back at you. I said, please tell me you're not creating monkey content. That's the, (laughs) that's the biggest thing that drives me nuts about this, right? We're going to have this debate. Now we're literally going to have segments because in, in a lot of producers listen to the show, we love you guys. We have relationships, but if I see where we're debating for like 30 minute segments, uh, how much of a favorite the Browns would be over Alabama. Like, just shoot me in the face you right.
1: I mean, you're not looking forward to before these finals are over and we talk about LeBron's legacy. You know, what the point spread would be between the 2018 Cleveland Cavaliers <laughs> against the 1997 Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. To and try it's the entire and segment ju- where we
2: scream at each other.
1: Yeah, exactly. Further justify and or validate exactly <laughs> why Michael Jordan remains the greatest of all time because he's 6-0 in the finals. Meanwhile, he couldn't hold a torch to what LeBron James has had to do to carry the Cleveland Cavaliers and, and other hint, teams over the last and- couple of years
2: and hint during pre-production, even though, uh, we both might agree, uh, we're going to come out on TV and disagree completely.
1: <laughs> going to be a fun time, man. Going to be a fun time ahead. And we can only hope, uh, when it comes to content distribution that our listeners can't speak for everybody out there. Uh, they've sung our praises. They've shared the gospel. Uh, they've been phenomenal in terms, in terms of helping our overall growth, Um, that people are going to seek out better content the same way when you look to try and find a pregame show or you find a radio host that you like you want to be entertained you want to be educated but you want to be informed and sports betting pain as you've always said it can be a fun hobby and it should be recreational for 98 percent of americans that just don't have the time or the resources uh, to dig into you know a day's slate of games or even a weekend slate like we do but at the same time You want to keep your money in action a heck of a lot longer than watching these one-in-nine stretches become common occurrences because people that aren't willing to put their own money on the line are going to be the ones screaming from the rooftops that they have 500-star locks or any other terminology that you and I often agree sends chills down our spine that they throw it out there uh, as common common parlance.
2: That's going to be the other interesting element to this. I've already seen it through social media getting followed by these new Twitter accounts that pop up of handicappers. That's going to make this this industry a little more interesting, too.
1: There's got to be a way that... You, God, I think about this out loud and get me in a lot of trouble. So maybe I'll uh, I'll table that thought uh, for, for a different discussion when we try and figure out, you know, how those folks are going to misrepresent themselves in the space and, and if you believe that there are ways to... I don't want to say credential, uh, but the same way you have with stock advisors uh, in the sports space, but... I think that's a, a whole different discussion, probably not worth getting into in that way. I mean, In my opinion, we've done a, a pretty comprehensive job talking about legalization and how we see it coming to various states. I know some of our listeners are going to be impacted differently. We have folks across the pond that are already able to bet legally uh, through the U.K. or other jurisdictions out there. Uh, I think it's an interesting time ahead, uh, and when we recorded our Kentucky Derby podcast at the beginning of May, I never in my wildest dreams anticipated this would happen as fast as it did. But we knew legalization was coming. We just weren't sure what it was going to look like uh, and how quickly it would happen. So uh, I have to imagine. And even the
2: people on the inside, right? You could certainly plan and say, hey, I'm I'm building a company based around sports betting and it's clear it's coming. And no doubt it was clear it was coming. I think it was the timetable that shocked everybody. And we're in obviously pretty tight with the AGA. and, And while they were overly optimistic, right? That's what they needed to do. They wanted to push this forward. They would tell you they're shocked at how quickly this happened as well.
1: And I think, you know, for an organization like that, that's lobbied so hard for legalization uh, and putting the power back in individual states... They're going to have their work cut off for them. Uh, they may not say it publicly, but the AGA's work, in my opinion, is just getting done. And yep. speaking of the AGA, I guess a shout out and a uh, special thanks to a friend of the program, Jeff Freeman, who announced earlier this week that as of August 1st, they'll be leaving that organization to join the uh, grocery. I'm going to butcher it. Something involved with the grocers union uh, to try and handle that. I know he was integral in pushing for legalization. And maybe, Payne, that means when we get Jeff on there for like closer to football season, we bought to ring. Want to bring him off for a few minutes. He can actually pick a winner in some of the games instead of just abstaining to make sure he can protect the integrity of his post. <laughs> Absolutely. So plenty of stuff on legalization. Obviously, we reconvene in August. Uh, we'll have more information for you on that front uh, and be able to speak about it from an even more educated standpoint. But there are some games taking place and there are wagering opportunities to be found all summer. No greater than what you're going to see in the World Cup starting in Russia on June 14th. And should you want to get into all of that wagering action and take part in what BetOnline.ag will offer for you, take advantage of the promotional codes we have available. First time sign up 75BTB is what you're going to want to put in for a 75% sign up bonus for those folks looking to reload that may have taken some time off. After college basketball season, or maybe even after the Kentucky Derby, 50BTB is what you're going to want to use. And you can get all of that information at promotions.betonline.ag backslash bettheboard. And Payne, we've kept our uh, international football specialist waiting long enough. It's time to welcome him into the Bet the Board fold. I've been a big fan of this man's content for quite a while. There's no one better when it comes to analyzing international football across every major league. You can check out his definitive guide to the World Cup. It's a pinned tweet at We Love Betting on Twitter. More importantly, though, I encourage anybody, soccer enthusiast, soccer diehard who wants to put a little skin in the game to follow him on Twitter at Mark O'Hare. Uh, Mark, thrilled you had some time. I know you just finally emerged from your soccer bunker over the last two and a half, three months. Thanks.
3: Yeah, thanks, Todd. Thanks for a very kind introduction there as well. Very flattering and, and honoured to be uh, you think that way. But uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been very many months of of hard work and preparation and research and analysis. But we got there eventually on on sort of earlier this week. And the the feedback to the magazine's been been brilliant, and it uh, makes all that hard work really worthwhile. So um, I'm glad people are enjoying it.
1: Question on the World Cup in the greater context. I mean, we talk about American football and, hey, sometimes the biggest games don't offer ample value opportunities and some of the betting. Where does the World Cup stand for you uh, and some of your football handicapping in terms of offering opportunities? Or do you feel like, you know what, this is just a marquee event, we have to cover it in some detail, or do you feel there's actually uh, ample opportunity to make a few bucks?
3: Yeah, great question. Um, International football – and I guess especially major tournament football, in terms of a World Cup or a European Championship or um, a Copa America or a CONCACAF Gold Cup, the, the sort of regional major international tournaments, they're all quite tricky from an outset because there's very little data and very little stats to, uh, on these teams. They play so rarely. They play so rarely competitively against good quality opposition as well you look at the European qualifiers for example and one of the big teams such as a Germany or a Spain they'll be alongside um, a very much a, a minnow a kind of a no hope I guess in, in qualification you'll have teams as small as uh, Andorra and Liechtenstein and San Marino playing against these teams so there's very little you can sort of glean from those kind of games um, so the actual sort of data sets very very short and, and small but uh, there is a bit of evidence you obviously you can take from qualification but You've got to sort of feed out the noise as much as anything else. Um, qualification can last for, for over two years. In that time, teams will change management, teams change players, uh, change system as well. Uh, you look at the Asian teams, there's five Asian teams at the World Cup this summer four of which have changed their coach in the past year alone. Uh, So there's no sort of consistency there. Uh, But there are a few narratives that you you can kind of follow or or look to oppose. Uh, The media will often hype up certain teams or, or players, and it's a case of trying to find the right side of those narratives, I guess, to, to, to push or, or to oppose. And there will be a, quite a few overrated nations. Uh, England is always fairly overrated just because of the power of money over in the UK and Europe towards them. <laughs> um, uh, but there are also quite a lot of underrated nations, and, and I guess the African nations this time around, uh, a couple of them are looking at a little bit underrated, going under the radar. Um, so, yeah, for, from a sort of punting perspective, it's a case of... of, of trying to find the sort of strengths and weaknesses of these teams, understand the coach's philosophy, how he likes his teams to play, how these teams might set up and, and react accordingly, um, and also just be aware that, that shocks and upsets happen all the time in the World Cup. It, it's full of them. The pressures are immense, the games come thick and fast, and football is a very low-scoring sport too, so luck does play a big part. There are extra variables in, in football or, as you say, soccer, so um, that does have a huge effect. And um, And also, it's very unusual for sort of soccer teams to be cooped up in a a hotel for for longer than three weeks. Um, So you need to have a a good dynamic amongst the squad. Um, uh, You know, all these kind of factors need to play play a part. And there's a few teams, the reason I said that last point, there are a few teams in history who uh, are kind of known to either blow up off the pitch. You know, there's always infighting or there's problems with bonuses and that sort of thing. So it's trying to be aware of, Which teams, uh, you know, where these teams are in terms of a a mental space, what their aspirations are, how they're likely to approach things. And then, you know, a lot of it does come down to your own opinion and and, and how you see these teams and and players in particular, um, you know, coming together and producing. Um, I was at an interesting preview night recently where... Uh, a collection of either World Cup winners or World Cup previous stars from the World Cup were talking about their experiences. And one of them, uh, an England player, came out and said that uh, he never enjoyed playing in major tournaments because he was essentially cooped up in a hotel. With a load of players who he he, didn't, he disliked because his team were you know in direct rivalry to these players on a on a week to week basis, so it was a very strange dynamic and I think that's really really interesting when you look at certain teams like Spain at the World Cup. You know you've got the the Barcelona and Real Madrid players who uh, apparently hate each other. Well, they're now suddenly teammates uh, and the similar sort of situation uh, in a couple of other teams as well. So yeah, it's quite interesting. There's quite a few dynamics to sort of. Um, to sort of uh, consider um, but if you're looking for sort of goals based bets I think there's a, a quite a good um, I guess you could say a little kind of track record good case study you could kind of follow from previous World Cups and that's the fact that goals in the first round of group games are normally quite low and they gradually get higher for the second round and then the third round but then in the knockout phase it, it reduces right back and um, because obviously the, the pressures of, of the match are, are much more significant uh, I think you're looking around sort of a 244 goals per game average in the group stage um, and 31 of those the last 48 group games at the last three world cups saw three or more goals which is something to, to follow but four of the last 15 knockout games didn't or, or fell below that line and actually knockout matches are averaging around 1.94 goals per game which is you know below two which is a uh, very 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 shy so yeah there's, there's plenty sort of going for you um it does require a little bit of homework a bit of reading a bit of understanding knowing who you're who you're keen to sort of get behind who you're keen to oppose but uh, you know once that homework's done plenty of opportunities arise because at the end of the day the data's so thin and uh, a lot of these bookmakers won't be you know their knowledge is as good as your knowledge really there's only so much um, information out there so it's a case of getting hold of it and using it to your advantage
1: Well, I will say, Mark, when you're talking about unders and rooting for nothing to happen during sporting events, you've come to the right podcast. (laughs) I mean, we've kind of separated ourselves from some of the competition. We love nothing more than American football games that go to the half at 3-0. I will take umbrage, though, with something you said talking about European qualifiers and minnows. It was actually a CONCACAF minnow in Trinidad and Tobago that kept our beloved – uh, Team USA out of this World Cup. So yeah. I have to be careful. Nothing can be uh, assumed as a mere formality when you talk about it, but obviously it changes the dynamic of this tournament. And I think that's part of why you're going to see American fans looking to get behind nations they might otherwise not have um, and, and really want to try and identify some of those investment opportunities that are out there, which I guess leads me to a more comprehensive question, not so much just in philosophy for the World Cup, uh, but what kind of advice? you know, on a very high level, would you give to some of those soccer punters that may not have a familiarity? They might not be fans with MLS when it comes to, you know, the two way, the three way, uh, and the totals market specifically both teams to score as well without getting into some of the more complex derivatives.
3: Uh, good question. Um, I guess the first one is to be, um, look to, look to oppose short price favorites when it's, you know, if you've done your homework, and you're maybe, maybe if you haven't done your homework, but there's a few teams, particularly, I'd look at Argentina in this World Cup, they're, they're very much overvalued. I know I, I'm kind of probably going to contradict myself here and say that um, earlier I sort of suggested that qualification wasn't necessarily a great or barometer to success, because it's not 2002, Brazil barely scraped into the World Cup, and actually went on to win the World Cup, but Argentina have had a terrible, terrible time of it in the last 18 months, but they're still being rated as if they're the Argentina of old, and that, has, that is because they've got the greatest player who may have ever walked, walked the earth, but... Uh, whether he can sort of gather that team and bring them through. They're very much being valued as if they're the Argentina team that have won the World Cup a couple of times. So it's a case of trying to find these teams who are basically being overrated due to their name and due to maybe a couple of names in the squad as well um, and trying to find sort of reasons to oppose. There's a, there's various other little things I used to sort of look at, but unfortunately this World Cup, there's, there's very sort of little kind of other variables to sort of take into account, such as, Days rest or or travelling. Um, there are quite a few time zones in Russia, but most of the teams are sort of positioned where there's there's not too much travel involved. I think they've got sort of four or five days between each games, uh, which hasn't always been the case. You go back four years ago and the World Cup in Brazil, you had different, well, not necessarily different time zones, but such different climates across the whole country. There was a there was a couple of group games played in Manaus, which is essentially the Amazon jungle, and uh, teams who went to play in Manaus, none of them actually won their next group game because uh, the the sort of toil of playing in that heat and that climate really really took it out of them. So, uh, unfortunately, Russia, the the weather is going to be reasonably um, stable throughout the country. It's not going to be too hot, really. Um, Perhaps in a couple of cities like like Sochi, it might get a little bit hot, but uh, more often than not, it's going to be pretty stable, the temperature travels reasonably comfortable or, or, or similar for everyone as well. So it's actually quite hard to kind of find Different set, of, different set of angles. So for anyone who's kind of new to the game, I would be looking to, to sort of punt the goals angles um, just because, um, you know, the evidence is there. It's, it's been sort of proven over not just one or two World Cups, sort of the last five, six, seven World Cups. So this is a, a kind of pattern that does tend to play out quite often. The opening group game, nobody wants to lose naturally so the, the sort of goal angles are sort of goal numbers that are quite low the second group game is is more of a you know we must win this if we've got to have a chance to, to qualify for the next round we have to win this so naturally teams are more attacking and in the third group game either two teams or sorry one team might already be out one team might have already qualified so the pressure is a a little bit less, teams come out. That Obviously, the teams who have to get a victory are going all out for a victory. Uh, other teams are playing reserve players. Other teams are already thinking about the flight home. So, naturally, the, the sort of pressures are off and the, and the goals tend to fly in. But then, especially when it gets to the knockout phase, I'd be looking to oppose goals almost everywhere, really, um, unless you have got a, a sort of, um, not necessarily a minnow, but a bit of a, a dark horse up against a, a big team or... Uh, you know, if you're looking at the odds are completely skewed in one way, then naturally the goals should be should begin to flow. But um, I would be looking to oppose goals where possible in the, in the knockout phase. It doesn't phase me in the least to
1: root for a game ending nil-nil. I've identified a couple spots myself, especially... Uh, in the first set of group stage games. When we look at the familiar powers, I mean, we talk all the time about Dark Horses, uh, as you mentioned, and teams that can kind of come from off the pace to surprise. It still is an event, uh, the World Cup as a whole, that's really lent itself to the Blue Bloods and the traditional powers. I mean, you really have only eight nations in total uh, that have won World Cups, and one of those prominent nations won't even be there. The Italian side, who's won four of them, Brazil, five-time champion, Germany, the defending champion, won four titles of their own you look at spain france argentina that whole bucket of we can call them favorites or co-favorites all priced more or less in the single digits is there a particular team in that quintet that really uh offers a little bit of value or what's your take when you try to identify the favorites and how they should be priced maybe in the outright market uh as much as some of their individual matches
3: Yeah, so um, just from a personal point of view, uh, I think this World Cup is going to be between three teams, um, Brazil, Germany, or Spain. Now, I was really, really keen on Brazil about 18 months ago uh, and up until probably around March, April time. And then my doubts started creeping in. I started cooling. The market kind of moved towards them. They've been backed into favouritism, which I just don't think is right. Um, Neymar, their star player, got injured uh, earlier this year. He returned at the weekend, um, and he looks to be over his over his issues. I think he broke his, broke his foot, but I still have nagging doubts over him and his temperament. He's quite a petulant character, and this team does actually lack leadership as well. Uh, the coach Chichí, he's uh, he's been rotating the captaincy uh, throughout his tenure. Now Brazil were, you know. Absolutely a shambles before he came in about two years ago. They were in danger of missing out on the World Cup, and Chichí came in, uh, revitalised the squad, and they qualified with flying colours. Uh, but he has been rotating the lead, the, the captaincy. So you know, each to every game, he's, he's giving the captaincy to a different player. There's this kind of shared leadership model. Uh, but arguably, their the biggest leader is is Dani Alves, quite a. You could, probably, I guess you could call him a veteran, uh, a right-back, rampaging right-back, absolutely outstanding player. Um, he's injured, uh, so he's missing the World Cup. And that's a big blow because outside of him, I do worry who's going to be the actual leader on the pitch. Uh, and, and there are a couple of other doubts as well. Their midfield is, is quite stodgy. They do rely on Neymar and uh, Philippe Coutinho quite a lot for their sort of creative play. Um you know, there's no real concerns about their ability at all, but Neymar's uh, condition is obviously a little bit of a concern. They've got loads and loads of momentum, loads of confidence as well. chi has been fantastic. They're the winning games. The draw is pretty kind too, but there are a couple of little doubts that have kind of crept into me uh, recently. So personally, I really like Germany and Spain. Uh, Germany, you know, I think it's not since uh, the 1960s has anyone retained the World Cup, and I think only three of the last 15... Defending champions that even reached the final the following four years. So, you know, history is against them. Uh, but the Germans just, you know, they're a machine. They've reached the, the semi finals in the last six major tournaments. I think they've only missed the World Cup semi finals in five of 18 appearances, which is, you know, just a ridiculously good record. They've got this sort of temperament and confidence about them, but they just feel that this is their their place really the top table of international football they're all on the same page they respect the coach and the coach has obviously got proven ability at winning major tournaments I think they've got variety uh, they've got ability Uh, defensively their goalkeeper and and, and three of the back four in in defence all play for Bayern Munich so there's a familiarity about their defence too uh, and compared to four years ago, I actually think this team's moved on and, and is stronger. They have lost a bit of experience in that team, but up front now they've got pace and, and a bit of guile in Timo Werner. Tony Cruz is uh, an outstanding sort of deep-lying playmaker in midfield. Joshua Kimmich is, is well-class in his position out right back as well. I don't actually see many weaknesses in that team, um, possibly in defensive midfield. Uh, Sammy Kadira is getting on a bit. His condition to play probably two games in a week isn't great, but they have got back um, and the likes of Meza Erzel, Julian Draxler, Marco Royce, attacking midfielders who always seem to turn it on for the for the national team. So um, the kind the draw is very kind as well. So um, they've got a nice little route towards the sort of quarterfinals, semifinals. So it definitely be considering Germany but also Spain um, Spain are a little bit bigger in price and that's because they've been drawn into a, a really tough group uh, they've got their neighbours Portugal European champions um, they've also got Morocco um, who you know are probably one of, of two of the best African teams at the competition and they've also got Iran who are the best Asian team in the competition so it's actually a really difficult group but they have got you know, outstanding riches of, of quality across their team probably the best goalkeeper in the competition uh, P.K. and Ramos, the centre-halves at Barcelona and Real Madrid. Uh, full-backs who've got energy and, and can deliver a ball, but also defend um, an attacking midfield, which is arguably the best in the competition. If there are weaknesses, it's probably, again, defensive midfielder, Defensive midfield with um, Sergi Busquets. He's getting on a bit, and he can be attacked uh, if, if pressed by, by the opposition sides. But, you know, I think... Uh, They've got a coach now in, in Julian Lopetegui who arrived two years ago, but he's worked with these players from sort of youth youth, youth team levels. Um, so there's a familiarity there. The players like him uh, the players are reacting to him. Um, but he's also got a quandary up front as well. They've got three different options, all offering different sort of uh, qualities to their game. So Spain... I guess my question there is, is whether the variety to their play is suitable to those players, uh, whether the midfield, the attacking midfield can deliver um, when called upon in a, in a tight knockout game. I expect they can, um, but also the chemistry as well. There's just a lingering question mark over that. As I say at the start, there's a, a bit of tension there between Real Madrid and, and Barcelona players. Um, so you just wonder whether, whether it will work. Obviously it did, and it has worked previously, but they've had two poor major tournaments in, in succession. They changed the coach. The coach has sort of revitalized this team. They have been moving forward at an impressive rate. But, uh, you know, I think those three are, are probably the standout candidates. Um, if you want me to elaborate on the others, I can. <laughs> well, I just want to try
1: and set the table for some of our listeners, for those folks who may not have looked at any of the World Cup odds. Both Germany and Brazil uh, listed at 4-1 to one at betonline.ag uh, to claim the ultimate prize in international football. Spain right behind them at 6. Before we get into maybe two of the other teams that I think will be very popular uh, in terms of anti-post wagers with France and Argentina, Mark, you look at Spain unbeaten the last 18 matches. David De Gea, as you mentioned, outstanding uh, throughout qualification, And when we look at Brazil and Germany, I just have a question about Germany and their situation uh, between the sticks. Do we fully believe that the fitness of Manuel Neuer is going to allow him to backbone this team all the way uh, to defending a World Cup? Or do we think we're going to see substantial minutes for Ter as well, knowing Neuer just played his first competitive match in one of
3: the friendlies leading up to the tournament? Yeah, this is something I, I thought about. And, um, you know, it obviously is a concern that he's played one warm-up match uh, before the World Cup. I expect him to play again. I'm not sure where Germany's last friendly fixture is, but I expect he'll be given a start to to prove himself. But I think the the thing that kind of makes me believe in Germany, I just don't think they're silly enough to, to risk playing a player of his ability um, in such a key game or, or key competition, especially when you've got someone like Ter Stegen in, as a backup I think the only question mark could be about around Man, Manuel Neuer's probably mental state, if you like, whether he really trusts himself um, after such a long spell out. Uh, I guess he he did okay against Austria; he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, he looked like you know typical Manuel Neuer, kind of rampaging outside of his box, <laughs> um, taking hold of the ball and sort of just commanding his area pretty pretty comfortably. And um, I think you've just got to. It's hard for us punters on the outside because we just don't know what's going on inside the camp. But in these sorts of situations, I like to try and trust the guy in charge. And in this case, it's Germany. I just don't see Germany making those kind of mistakes or, or rushing anyone back into position, into play when you've got such outstanding backup. Ter Stegen was absolutely fantastic for Barcelona this year. So they shouldn't have any concerns. If if, if Neuer is injured or, or lacking fitness, they shouldn't have any concern in playing Ter Stegen.
1: And it's hard to argue with the success we've seen Jurgi Lowe achieve as manager of the German side. Uh, he's been given a free pass, as far as I'm concerned. Whatever decisions he makes, I think he knows that talent inside now. as you mentioned. You mentioned Argentina maybe, maybe being a little bit overvalued. We've seen an over-reliance on Lionel Messi over the last year. I believe he represents 37% of their offensive output. Maybe they're a little bit more vulnerable for early Tournament departure than anybody wants to let on. But you talked about chemistry, you talked about infighting, and uh, you used the example of a former English footballer saying that he wasn't exactly happy spending time with some of their bitter rivals. There is no better poster child for a team that has unlimited talent if you look at the individuals that may have failed to realize all of that potential on the pitch uh, than the French side uh, led by Didier Deschamps. We know about Antoine Griezmann, we know about Paul Pogba. And they got to the finals of Euro 2016 before Portugal outlasted them. What do we make of France listed at 7-1? to one? And do we think this is a you know, nation capable of making a deep run maybe to the semifinals uh, or winning the entire thing?
3: Yeah, it should be. There should definitely be contenders. Um, they should definitely have aspirations to reach at least the semi finals. Um, it's probably the greatest collection of young stars in, in the competition, uh, probably the greatest collection of, of young stars we've seen in quite some time. There's a real sort of generational shift here happening with French football. They're producing these, these superstar players. They all seem to be coming through at once, but that presents problems. And very rarely does the World Cup be won by the greatest. Um, Squad based of individuals, it's always the case of uh, the best team will win it. Um, and we, you know, I have valid questions about Didier Deschamps' ability to to bring that squad together, pick the correct team pick the correct tactics as well uh, and keep everyone happy. The French are known to you know, have their own kind of not necessarily infighting, but they have had issues in, in previous years. And I think this is a very young squad. Almost half of their squad has fewer than 10 international caps. And that is a concern. I think you do need a bit of experience, a bit of know-how. Um, and again, Deschamps is another one who's kind of holding me back a little bit uh, impressively, he's only ever been knocked out of major tournaments by the eventual winners. Uh, obviously, Portugal two years ago, but the way in which France.
1: Which, uh, hold uh, on one second, Mark. If you're not going to toot your own horn, I will give you full credit. You tipped up Portugal before Euro 2016, so I profited quite handsomely from that investment. And I think that was <laughs> one of the first times when, hey, this guy might know what he's talking about.
3: Yeah, yeah. well that was, uh, that was a uh, you know, Portugal, I got lucky with Portugal, I've got to be honest, they only won one match <laughs> in, in 90 minutes, but the, the idea behind them winning that tournament was, was the coach, and the coach was kind of geared towards knockout football, um, his team was set up for knockout football, and that's just what France weren't. and France cruised the group stage, they were the hosts, they were expected to sort of saunter their way to the title, there was no real outstanding team, they were the outstanding team apparently, and it just never really worked for them after the group stage. And particularly in that final, you felt that maybe the pressures of hosting the tournament was, was too much, but they, they wilted a little bit. But for me, that's a, an error against Deschamps. Like, he should be winning that. It's a, it's a home tournament in front of your home fans. You've got a great squad, great bunch of players. You're playing a Portugal team who are out on their legs, and Cristiano Ronaldo had to go off injured in that game as well. So um, it's a black mark. And, um, you know, I question... Two years ago, whether they had the ability to to, to form a, a cohesive unit, especially in midfield, and again the same questions are cropping up: whether Paul Pogba can can fit into that midfield trio, whether he's going to play a four midfield, four midfielders, uh, and three uh, strikers with two kind of out wide in, in Greensman and Mbappe and, and Olivier Giroud through the middle. I just think he's struggling for balance. He's struggling to fit his best players in. Um, the group is kind, I think they've got, but then they've got two. Reasonably difficult, um, arguably games before in the knockout stages. I think they would be due to meet the likes of either Portugal or Uruguay. Uh, probably Uruguay at those two, which is a very difficult game. And then you've got Brazil, uh, probably in the semi-finals. And I would be probably opposing France in, in both of those games. I just think this might be might be four years too soon for, for this French team.
1: It'll be uh, very interesting to see how some of those teams play out. And the last two I wanted to get your take on before we do a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the individual matches and groups. No discussion of the World Cup would be complete without England. And then, of course, a team nestled between them with unlimited star power on the pitch and some major questions, at least for me, at the manager post. Not quite sure it'll get worse than Mark Wilmots, but how do you see things playing out uh, for the likes of Belgium and England? Two teams that most likely will be competing for a top honors in their respective in their, in their same group.
3: Yeah, it's interesting you say that about Roberto Martinez because I have the same question marks as well, but uh, as well over Mark Wilmots. Obviously, Mark Wilmots was the coach for the last World Cup and the last Euros. He had this superstar squad. Um, Everyone is expecting Belgium to be this team that moved from dark horses to serious contenders. And again, it just didn't happen. He was uh, defensively-minded, a dour team, which just never really worked. Um, But Martinez is a complete sea change. Um, He's much more attacking, much more gung-ho. Uh, his assistant Thierry Henry, of course, famous French striker. They're looking to play a uh, sort of swashbuckling attacking style. Uh, three central defenders, two wing backs, um, two up front. Uh, but uh, again, I have a few doubts over this team. Uh, defensively, their captain Vincent Company got injured last week. There's doubts whether he's going to be. Well, even before the injury, whether he was fit enough to play twice in a week, um, you know, if you're playing, if you're going all the way to the final, you're going to have to play six or seven games. Uh, I have doubts whether company can do that over a five-week spell. Uh, his replacement would probably be Thomas Vermaelen. He has his own injury concerns and, and conditioning concerns. Uh, Toby Alderweireld, another centre half, uh, outstanding centre half, but he hasn't played too much. Uh, this season with Spurs, whether that's a, a fallout with the coaching system uh, in Spurs or, or his own injury issues, I think are probably a mixture of, of both. So he might be a little bit undercooked. And then if you're looking at the Belgium squad, there's probably two... Their team and squad, uh, you know, absolutely stocked with, with quality players, but the two standout stars, Edin Hazard and Kevin De Bruyne, they haven't actually played well together in the same team for, well... You know, in my memory, anyway, the Belgian public aren't happy with this team. They, uh, they feel that they're overpaid and just don't want to perform for the national team. And that's a real concern. So there's a real kind of negative attitude towards them. De Bruyne plays a much more withdrawn role for Belgium and what he does with Manchester City. He actually spoke out about the tactics that Martinez was employing back in November after a friendly. He had a bit of a stinker. At the time, he was probably the best player in the Premier League. And, you know, I think fans were getting on his back. Hazard's been a little bit better, but the two of them have just never put their their best, best foot forward on the international stage. And um, that has to be a concern. And they're likely to run into Brazil in the quarterfinals. And, and you know, I just wonder whether that's, a you know, whether they've got the, the quality to, to take Brazil down. But just on England, um, England are always yeah. I mean, if, make- if,
1: you, if you only need 30 seconds to say England is overvalued, I feel like that's <laughs> one common denominator every time they step up in class on in the international stage.
3: Yeah, they're the second price, second biggest price they've ever been in the World Cup, but that's the reason, because their squad is just so, so young. Um, there's clearly a, a kind of idea that Gareth Southgate, the head coach, is looking for to, two or four years further down the line. He's changed the system as well. They're playing three centre-halves, but very few of the players who will be playing in the centre-half positions play in a three-man defence for their clubs. So there's quite a lot to learn. There are a few green shoots there. There's no doubt there's some quality players, Raheem Sterling, you know, could have a real breakout tournament. Harry Kane is a quality striker as well, but uh, their midfield are full of cloggers. They're, they're lacking invention and, and ideas, and I think that might might cash them out. Plus, they're likely to meet Brazil or Germany in this quarterfinals, uh, depending on when they finish in their group. So, uh, yeah, I think there'll be curtains for England.
1: Watching the World Cup draw, I was extremely disappointed because these were actually two nations that I was looking to try and oppose early and often. The unfortunate reality being put in a... Group with the likes of Tunisia and Panama, not going to provide ample opportunity, at least in my opinion, uh, for us to make money betting against England and Belgium early on. But when we go a little bit deeper and we look at the eight groups that are available, Mark, which jumps off the page to you as most interesting, maybe from a fan's perspective, but also the ample opportunity that's going to be there identifying wagering value?
3: Okay, good question. Um, I'd head to Group H to answer both of those questions. Um, It's a group of Japan, Colombia, Poland and Senegal. Uh, I think it's absolutely fascinating, this pool, because there's no top seed and there's no minnow either. Um, Japan are in a pretty poor state and probably will finish bottom of the group. Asian teams have quite a poor record in World Cups of late if they're not hosting it. Um, So they're in a pretty... They've had pretty poor preparation. They changed their coach earlier this year. You know, it's just it's just not not ideal. Um, but Poland uh, were the top seed or, or second seed, and I think they can definitely be taken on. Uh, they play Senegal first, and Senegal are a side who I definitely want on side. But looking at Poland, um, their key centre back, Camille Glik, uh, plays for Monaco. He is a big injury doubt. He tried to do an overhead kick in training, uh, landed on his shoulder and has put his shoulder out. So um, yeah, he's racing uh, against time to be fit. And also the key players across the board, they've got a very strong spine, but those... Players in that spine have been either injured for long periods or out of match fitness or have lost form as well. So, And also a little bit older than they were two years ago um, and four years ago. You know, They're getting older. They're not as quick. They're not as uh, effective in the press. Um, and they're very much reliant on Robert Lewandowski up front as well. Defensively, they're very, very, very much suspect. And I think they can definitely be taken on here. Senegal, uh, a team I really like. I think they're potential dark horse material for, for this competition. Um, just in both terms of of kind of both boxes you've got a player like Sadio Mane from Liverpool uh, ready to play on the counter-attack if you you kind of get the ball to him quickly Uh, he's also surrounded by yeah, quite a plethora of absolutely outstanding attacking quality, but in defence as well, they've got Koulibaly, the, the Napoli centre-half, who's a real wonderful defender. He could probably, move, you know, probably be moving on to something much bigger and better this summer as well if he has a good World Cup. But they're very physical, quite well organised too, and I think they're going to be very much like, very awkward opposition for anyone in that group. But And Colombia have question marks as well compared to where they were four years ago, so I think that's a really balanced group, but um, I wouldn't be having Poland or Colombia in my top two in terms of the betting. I think Senegal are definitely very dangerous opposition. And if we looked at group A, I think group A is reasonably interesting because you've got the host nation. Hold
1: hold, hold on a second, Mark. You're talking group A interesting. I'm I'm sure those are the matches that we're going to get, you know, no viewership on here stateside when we talk about the likes of Russia, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> Uruguay, and Egypt. But don't want to cut you off. I'm sure you're going to identify an opportunity for us to make a few bucks. <laughs>
3: yeah, no, it's, um, it's a pretty dreadful group if you're looking at it from, from that sort of team heritage and what they're going to bring to the World Cup uh, by all means. And the opening game of the competition is, is pretty rotten as well in <laughs> Russia, Saudi Arabia. But um, there are possible opportunities here. Now, it has changed a little bit in the last week or two, but Uruguay are the obvious team in that group. You expect to top it. They're, they're far too good for the rest, and they should, and Saudi Arabia should struggle. So then it's a straight fight out between Russia, who are the hosts, and Egypt. And host nations have a really strong record in the World Cup. Only one has ever gone out in the group stage. But this Russia side are really, really poor. Um, they're being talked about as possibly the worst hosts ever. Um, defensively, they're a shambles. Uh, they, three of their sort of defenders from two years ago, retired. They're all sort of 36, 37-year-olds. They've also had serious injuries in defence. Uh, those replacements have come in and suffered serious injuries. So one of those defenders have had to basically come out of retirement just to fill some gaps in this team. Um, the midfield is their strength, but the coach is really lacking ideas. I think they're really vulnerable. Um, Egypt were, you know, I think Egypt are almost being overrated by some people who just want to take on Russia. They're not as good as we might think they are. But crucially, they've got Mo Salah, and if Mo Salah is fit, they uh, they set up in a way which re- could really hurt Russia. Russia are very poor at breaking down deep line defences, who get men behind the ball. Uh, they're very very they struggle against those kind of opposition teams. That's how Egypt play. They're ridiculously defensive. They like sitting right back in their own half. They like bringing teams onto them. They're coached by Hector Cooper, uh, quite a a veteran Argentinian who's had success across Europe. Um, They sort of buy into his ideas. They sit deep. They look to kind of eliminate the opportunities they give up. And then they spring the counterattack towards Mo Salah. And I think that kind of style could really hurt Russia. The only thing that's kind of holding me back, saying this is a great, great bet, is... Egypt's lack of goals. If Egypt don't beat Russia, which is what they're going to have to do to, to probably get second spot, it will come down to goal difference, and I'm not sure Egypt can outscore Russia. But it's a really interesting group from that perspective, and the Egypt game against Russia, which I think is the second round of group games, could be absolutely fascinating because if Russia, if Russia don't get a result in that match, the pressure's definitely on, and they could uh, they could be heading home early.
1: Uh, and you mentioned Egypt, uh, Mo Salah representing eight out of the 18 goals uh, the nation scored in qualification. Current prices at BetOnline.ag for that particular group. You have Uruguay, as you mentioned, installed as a favorite, minus a dollar 20, followed by Russia at eight to five, Egypt five to one, and Saudi Arabia, the outlier, at 33 to one. Interestingly enough, for those folks who want to dig into some of it. Saudi Arabia over under total goals expected at Russia 2018 one and a half you do get a nice price going under. Um, going back to Group H uh, that you mentioned. Colombia the odds on favorite at plus a dollar thirty. Poland checks in behind them at plus one seventy. You're looking at Senegal at four to one and Japan at plus seven fifty. Of course those prices all to win the group. Now, no, Mark, you've mentioned some of the African sides, and one knock on African football as a whole is that they've lacked tactical assurance in previous World Cups. Do you feel like where we are in 2018, the Senegals, the Moroccos, and Nigeria, I mean, they burst onto the scene. It feels like they play Argentina every single international competition <laughs> they're in. Have burst on there. Do we think this could be a critical turning point for African football as a whole with those three nations kind of being the
3: torchbearers? I hope so. I really, I really, really hope so because I think there's the three teams you mentioned have got great opportunities to, to do something in this World Cup. I think they're all coached and managed very, very well. You mentioned Nigeria being in a group with Argentina. Um, they actually played each other in a friendly back in November before the draw was made, and Nigeria turned Argentina over quite convincingly. Uh, a very impressive performance, and there was. Real groans when they grew Argentina from drew Argentina in their in their group again. So um, it'll be interesting to see if they can repeat that feat. They're in a very difficult group, it should be said. Uh, Argentina, Croatia, and Iceland. Iceland are limited, and they have. Key injuries or, or players with question marks over their fitness, um, so there is an opportunity there. Croatia are very, very good. Argentina, are obviously Argentina, but um, I do think they've been a little bit underrated. Um, their performance against England in a friendly at the weekend was was really, really poor. Um, a lot of people writing them off immediately, but it's it's a warm up game. It's not a competitive match. It's just a warm up game, so I'm not reading too much into that. They've got dynamism. They've got pace. They've got strength. Um, but Whereas a Nigerian team of maybe 10 years ago was, was filled of with individuals with, with flair, with invention, with creativity. They were a joy to watch, but as a collective, they, they often suffered. This team's the complete opposite. Uh, Gernot Raw, the, the sort of disciplinarian disciplinary and German coach as kind of you know it's all about the team. It's all about the team ethic, work hard for the team, sit, play my system, and you'll have a chance. And it works. they qualified very, very well. Uh, their performances have been encouraging. So that's, I'm hopeful for Nigeria. I think they're undervalued. Um, I've already backed them to, to get out of that group. So um, more to do with Argentina's troubles as much as Nigeria's potential. Uh, I've already mentioned Senegal, which I think uh, could go very well. The best an African team has ever gone is, is the quarterfinals of Senegal, one of those teams on their debut in 2002. But uh, I've hoped that they can come out of that group. Definitely, I definitely feel that they can. And then uh, they'd likely face either Belgium or England in, in the first knockout phase, which I don't think they're going to be concerned about at all. I think they might very much take the game to one of those two teams and could cause them a lot of problems. And then you're looking at a final stage. I don't think that's beyond them at all. Um, I think Morocco are very much an interesting one. Uh, again, I, I sort of touched on it with Spain. I just My heart goes out to Morocco and Iran because they're two very good teams, but they're in, drawn in such a difficult group uh, with Portugal, Spain, um, obviously Morocco and Iran filling it out as well. But uh, Morocco, alongside Senegal, I'd say are the best African team. They're coached um, by uh, a bit of a, a legend in African football, Harvey Renard, uh, a Frenchman who kind of looks quite cool on the sidelines in his white crisp shirt and his flowing hair. But he's, uh, he's well known in African football for, uh, for his kind of his work with the underdogs. He took a Zambia team from no hopers to continental champions in the space of about 18 months. He, uh, an Ivory Coast team who perennially kind of underperformed despite having a golden generation. Well, on their way out, he actually took them over when they're kind of at their their kind of last ebb, really, and took them to to win the African Cup of Nations as well. So he's proven his success on the international level. Morocco are are a team and a a player and squad who have been known to sort of bicker and fall out with each other. Um, quite a few of the players will be born from sort of French or, or Dutch origins and they've not of, often mixed very well with the, with the local Moroccans either um, but Renard's basically got them all singing from the same hymn sheet, he's got a system that works and crucially he's got the players as well, um, Mehdi Benatia is an outstanding centre-half the fullbacks are very strong, Durar and uh, Hacking Hakimi. Um, they've also got quality in midfield. busufa's a brilliant holding midfielder, and going forward as well, they've got the quality to sort of cause problems to these opposition teams from set pieces. Um, but they've also got the ability to create openings you know, in tight defences. Um, as, as I say, it's just a very difficult group for them. I would want like to oppose Portugal in that group and, and back Morocco to get through it, but um, it's going to be very very difficult. They play Iran in the first game, which is going to be. Really pivotal ready to, to their opportunities to, to, to get through the group
1: I was waiting for you to tip up a final score in Iran Morocco at nil nil or maybe one nil <laughs> Morocco to be able to go opposing goals uh, at the two line you mentioned Morocco an interesting team and I think a lot of our listeners may not realize they didn't actually concede a single goal during qualification so pretty stout and resolute at the back end when you look at some of the individual matches, Mark, where have you identified potential opportunities? You know, again, either as a fan or from a wagering perspective where you think one particular team uh, could be extremely over or undervalued or you think there's some tactical advantage that one of these nations can exploit?
3: Yeah, I think we, we sort of just touched on it there, or you have anyway, with, with the Morocco and Iran and, and Portugal v. Spain. That's the, that's the opening round of games in Group B, which could have a huge bearing on how that group plays out. Um, it's the first Friday of the competition Portugal v Spain Morocco v Iran Um, both the apparent minnows playing against each other in that group one of them has to get a victory or at least try and get a victory to to set up an opportunity to to qualify so I'll be watching that uh, very very closely I think Portugal are are very much overrated and Morocco are underrated they play each other in the second game and you you desperately need Morocco to get a good result against Iran to make that match much more worthwhile Portugal, I think, could easily kind of scrape a, a, at least a point against Spain. They're, you know, quite a dour team. Uh, they play on sort of very sort of marginal games. Um, but um, outside of that, I probably look at Group C, where Denmark play Peru uh, in the opening game, which is. Uh, really, really interesting two complete clashes of styles, brew arriving at the competition um, you know with a world of momentum on their best ever unbeaten streak in the, in their history um, very fortunate to even be at the World Cup. a few decisions went their way but um they are there. They're very buoyant. The fans are gone, have gone bananas back home. They, they sold out of Panini stickers. They've gone that wild <laughs> uh, for the World Cup. And But they're a good little team. But I think they're going to – this is where the tactical element comes into it. They're um, a team who very much like to play front foot football. They like to attack. Their defense is their weak point, and the, their defense is lacking height and physicality. And Denmark have various ways of, of playing against teams. They are very good on the counter-attack. They've got Christian Eriksen, who's a, a star player, a star playmaker. Um, they're very good at set pieces, but they've also got the ability to, you know, uh, ruffle up some teams. They like the physical elements of it. Uh, they've got quite a, uh, They like to play quite a, a bit of a target man up front get the balls up to him. They like their transitions to be quick. They like to try and get the ball into the box as soon as they can. And they like to challenge their defenders that they're playing against uh, physically. So um, if you're looking for a sort of a tactical side there, I'd be looking to try and... um, side with Denmark there I think that's the, the crucial game in the group C to see who will probably qualify alongside France uh, my vote would go to Denmark in that game just because of they've got more ways to win their defence is strong they can uh, they can hurt you on a counter attack they can hurt you through Christian Eriksen but I think they're definitely going to bombard through the penalty area and um, And, yeah, that's it. Well, Senegal – sorry, I was going to say Senegal play Poland on the opening weekend in Group H. I've mentioned Senegal a few times now, as well as Poland as well. They play each other on the opening weekend, which is uh, fascinating. I desperately need Senegal to get a result there. I think they will. (laughs) will. And you you mentioned Peru and some of the excitement there.
1: I guess that's inevitable when you return to the highest level of the World Cup finals after a 36-year absence. Uh, and you mentioned their recent run of unbeaten streak 12 now at 12 straight their last loss coming in international competition back in November of 2016 of course the beneficiaries of getting Paulo Guerrero reinstated uh, in anticipation of the world cup before we get to some of your top picks, whether it's to emerge from the group stage, individual matches, just wanted to get your real quick thoughts on the golden boot market. And if it's something you believe offers opportunity or one, maybe that's a little bit more for a recreational better that wants to just have a handful of particular players, uh, to root for from when the tournament starts June 14th, uh, until we crown a champion on July 15th.
3: Yeah, I definitely think it's more of a, more of a recreational punt. This, um, Uh, whether that's just me speaking or or widespread, I'm not sure. But I've not really often had too much luck in this market. But uh, it's quite an interesting one. The trends suggest five or six goals is enough to to get you the top prize. That's been the case in nine of the last ten World Cups. And uh, quite often you also also get a big outsider coming in at at a big price. Um, I think the average price of a a top goal scorer since 1994 is 49 to 1 and four of the past ten winners or or players who have shared the top prize have been priced at 100 to 1 or bigger. So it's certainly a market I'd look to try and find, um, you know, maybe an outsider who's not expected uh, to go and score half of the goals, maybe not necessarily the leading striker for a certain team. But four years ago, James Rodriguez, the the Colombian playmaker, scooped the top award. He scored six goals. He was 100 to 1. So... For me, it's yeah. Uh, you know, I don't often get seriously involved in this market. It's more just a bit of fun. Uh, there's two towards the top end of the market I've looked at, which is Gabriel Jesus at Brazil and Timo Werner at Germany. Uh, they're both um, probably you know they play probably the furthest forward in both their teams. They've also got bigger names in that team who are probably hogging the headlights a bit more. Neymar for Brazil's a lot shorter than Gabriel Jesus, uh, and Timo Werner. He's up against sort of Thomas Muller, who's who's known to score World Cup goals as well. Uh, I think both of those will go very well. Um, but also there's a player Marco Royce who is just flying completely under the radar at the moment. He is one of the best players in the world when he's fit when he's in form um, and when the conditions are right and he's been so plagued by injuries in the past couple of years he missed the last World Cup he missed the last European Championships uh, you know really really heartbreaking stuff but he's absolutely outstanding he finished the tournament sorry finished the season in form I think he played seven or eight games on the spin for Borussia Dortmund scoring goals He's fit, he's fresh, he's feeling good. Um, I guess the, the big sort of uh, mark against him is whether he whether he actually gets a start in the first game, whether Yogi love actually trusts him to start the match uh, or start the tournament. If he does, he is an enormous price. I think he's around 66 to one, or, or possibly bigger, um, to go top goal scorer for a, a team you expect to reach the semi-finals. I think that's a, an, an, an excellent uh, an excellent bet to have, uh, even if it's just for a bit of fun.
1: Yeah, hopefully some level of familiarity for our American listeners with Marco Royce, obviously playing aside uh, U.S. sensation Christian Pulisic at Dortmund, uh, despite some of their underachieving ways uh, this past season in the Bundesliga. One team, and I I did lie. I do want to get your your top selections, but one team I have to ask you about, given the fact that there are CONCACAF rivals, our neighbors to the south. How do you see the 2018 World Cup unfolding for Mexico, and can they break their long-standing jinx of advancing past the first game uh, <laughs> of the knockout stage into the quarterfinals?
3: Yeah, it's becoming a—well, they think it's becoming a bit of a jinx over in Mexico, the, the fifth game, <laughs> as they call it. Um, it's the last six World Cups now. They've, they've gone out in the last 16, the, the first game after the group stage, and— um, I genuinely can't see it being anything different this time, which is really a bit of a shame because um, I think the team's got plenty of quality, especially going forward. Uh, The coach is disliked in Mexico because he he tinkers with the team. Uh, He's a Colombian coach and he tinkers with that team. And, yeah, it's this weird kind of... um, uh, tendency to, to switch full 11 te- you know all 11 players from game to game in, in major tournaments, which is a bit strange. And Mexico have had two really really poor results in major tournaments in the last two summers. but the, apart from that statistically he is the best manager that Mexico have ever had. and I think he's got the players up front especially to, to hurt teams. Mexico in a group which is manageable. Um, South Korea are definitely beatable. They're they're probably at the lowest ebb since uh, probably since '98, if not, you know, or or you know, possibly going back longer. They're they've got hatfuls of injuries. They're in poor form. There's no real kind of ideology in how that team should be playing. So I think Mexico can beat them. Sweden's going to be the interesting one. Uh, Sweden are very much a defensive team, very dogged, very organised, hard working. Um, all those kind of stereotypes of Scandinavian football, but uh, that'll be an interesting one, and that's probably going to be the the decider whether Mexico go through. I'd tip Mexico to beat Sweden and and probably pinch second spot because they're in a group of Germany, but the issue is if if they finish second in their group, they're actually due to play the winner of Group E, which uh, Brazil are very, very short odds on favourites to win that group. So you're playing Brazil in, in the last 16, and uh, you know I can't really find too many people who would back Mexico to get a result against Brazil, and so you're looking at uh, you know the fifth game. It's not going to happen not for another <laughs> four years.
1: You have to think there may be some El Tri fans out there that remain optimistic, knowing that Mexico has had limited international success, maybe more than other nations uh, when matched up against Brazil and some big stakes. But as you mentioned, uh, looks to be a huge disparity of talent in a potential round of 16 matchup got through most of the teams that we wanted to obviously we could talk about this for hours and days knowing all the hard work and remind all of our loyal listeners to go check out mark's twitter feed mark o'hare you can down or at we love betting as well to download his extensive guide uh, to get you ready for the world cup Uh, as i said before and through social media it is an invaluable tool uh, for a recreational better or a veteran football punter as well to get them prepared but, Mark, uh, our listeners do enjoy sometimes having those meals readily prepared for them rather than shopping for those ingredients. Uh, what would you say might be some of the best investments you could make leading into the tournament? You know, whether it's your two or three top selections, in addition to, uh, I know you offered your sentiment on the outright market winner already.
3: Yeah, so just on the outright winner, there's a, there's a couple of little trends that people might like to listen to uh, and kind of make their own decisions from it. But it, it's certainly, it, yeah, you know, it's another tick in the box of Germany. Um, at least one of Brazil or Germany have made it to the semi-finals since 1934. Um, since 1986, the average price of a World Cup winner is around six to one. Uh, you mentioned at the start of the show that it's a it's a bit of a close shot between those big guns, and the odds would certainly suggest it. Uh, and favourites have reached at least the semi-finals in six of the last eight tournaments. As well, um, so you know Brazil. Uh, I mentioned they've. I think they've got leadership concerns and a, a couple of issues elsewhere. I do think Germany and Spain are going to go very well. I've actually backed both of them um, because uh, they're basically set to meet each other in the semi-finals. Um, so if they're going to meet each other, um, I want to be on both of them. And they're going to be playing Brazil probably in the final. That's like how how the market expects things to play out. And I'll be backing Germany and Spain over Brazil. Uh, five of the last six World Cup finals have been contested by European teams um, and South American teams or teams outside of Europe do tend to have quite a poor record when the World Cup's been held in uh, in Europe. And just another nod in in Germany's hat as well there. They've reached half of the past 12 World Cup finals. Uh, It's quite a staggeringly good record, really. So those are the two I want outright on side. Um, elsewhere, as I have mentioned, I'm very keen on Senegal to, to progress from Group H uh, and possibly go further as well. Uh, very much against Poland in that group, which is a, a, a potential angle for the first weekend or the first week of the tournament when the two teams play each other. I think Argentina can be opposed. They've been a – I didn't probably expand on this too much, but they've been a bit of a mess for the past 18 months. They've been through three coaches in qualification – all of which had their own particular style and system and, and philosophy and how they wanted the team to play. Hawkey Sampierli's is the, the man in charge now. Um, you know, he's got a good reputation in Europe, but not so much in South America. Um, but it's all about his, his system, his style. He likes to play a really high-pressing game out, out of possession. He likes to use his, uh, his wingers. Uh, he likes energetic wingers and fullbacks. Uh, and he also pushes his defence up really high up the pitch. But to play that kind of football, you need players with pace, uh, and players of a brain as well. Uh, Argentina just don't have that in, in key areas. Um, you know they've been ruthlessly exposed in friendlies um, since qualification ended. They almost didn't qualify. They've been they were that poor. And uh, Venezuela finished bottom of South American qualification and scored more goals than Argentina in qualification. This is an Argentina team with with Lionel Messi, with Sergio Aguero, Di Maria. You know they're just stacked full of top heavy players, but defensively they're they're really not very good. Um, And their only warm-up game has come up against Haiti, so they're going to arrive reasonably undercooked as well. So I'd definitely be looking to oppose Argentina. They're going to be very short-priced favourites to to win all three games in the group, so there's opportunities there to, to oppose them too.
1: A lot of great stuff. I know you are a busy man. Hopefully that there is light at the end of the tunnel, which will lead to unprecedented riches and profits for all the hard work you've put into building that guide uh, and making our listeners smarter today. So, Mark, uh, again, thank you for joining the Bet the Board podcast. And folks can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark O'Hare. If you consider yourself a soccer enthusiast in any capacity, he is a must-follow. Best of luck this World Cup, and we'll look forward to talking to you again down the road.
3: Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me on. Honored and privileged and I really enjoyed speaking to you about the World Cup. So if you're watching, hope you enjoy it and hope it's a profitable one too.
1: That man, Payne, when it comes to international football is a wealth of knowledge. So I hope you were taking copious notes. I was in the voice. I mean, it conveys that level of authenticity that we want for uh, World Cup breakdowns. Where is he from? I uh, believe he's from the UK I'm not sure if he's fr- actually British though or if he's from Ireland man might have to start locating some women over there so he's fr- from Western Europe I mean pain that's I mean you're of Italian descent you live in Miami where it's a you're inundated with Latin women I can't see you going across the pond to Ireland or Britain to try and find your bride
2: the accent though that could get you
1: yeah, but I mean, I feel like you would end up in like Eastern Europe or Australia more than you would end up in Western Europe to try and identify the accent, you know, whether or not it was the accent that put you over the top.
2: I've been in London. 50-50 proposition women walk out of the house with their, you know, hair brushed or makeup on. Serbia, on the other hand, I've done Serbia before. Um,
1: yeah, one of these days, we're going to have to get you to tell this story about your time in Belgrade. Oof. Ran into Vladi Divac there, actually.
2: That, yeah, that'll be a story for a different day. <laughs> the nightclub we went to, was it was quite scary. It's on the water in a little inflatable thing. And they're like, hey, you know, they're not really nice to Americans. And we, we went and we're like, oh, no big deal. And everyone was nice that night. Very next night, like six Americans shot outside the club. And uh, so I was like, man, I don't know if I'm ever going back to, to Belgrade.
1: Yeah, it always pays in some of those spots uh, to make sure you're in tight with the right crowd and uh, I don't want to say it's going to be like that for when it comes to hooliganism, but the potential does exist for that in Russia. So it'll be interesting to see how they police that, the level of security. Oftentimes, feel you know, international events they do everything they can to protect, you know, foreign tourists because it's not good for business moving forward if uh, there was a calamitous event.
2: And the key there is having someone from that country or area with you, and that was the bonus for us because we got strict instructions when we walked in the club not to hit on women. Because they were probably uh, someone else's, and it's fair. so apparently that causes quite the ruckus there.
1: Yeah, don't. And the other thing for anybody traveling abroad, for some of our listeners, I know we have an all-ages type show. Don't be a drunk asshole when you're in a foreign country. Yes, I mean that it, that's the one piece of advice I want to give to anybody. Uh, they may be in their late teens, early 20s listening to the podcast, just don't be a drunk asshole when you go to a foreign country. You're not sure of how things work and you get yourself into trouble. From what I was told,
2: because we would be out during the day, there was
1: never women out
2: during the day. Apparently, they get all dolled. They stay, they stay indoors and they get all dolled up in Serbia to go out to the nightclubs to look good for their, their men.
1: It's not a uh, not the worst case scenario. Not a bad case scenario. Things unfold. Uh, for those folks uh, again who want to look to try and get involved in the World Cup action, 75 BTB first time signups at betonline.ag. Those folks looking to reload who have been loyal listeners for the Bet the Board 50 BTB going to be your depositing code. Remember all that information readily available promotions dot backslash Bet the Board. And Payne, we covered the World Cup in great detail. We have a pretty big horse race taking place this weekend in Elmont, New York. And, of course, all the discussion will center around Justify, looking to become only the second Triple Crown winner since the late 70s, joining American Pharaoh. And you look at the current odds, Morning Line favorite, 4-5. to five. Wasn't sure if you had some strong thoughts or uh, maybe some sentiment on terms of who the professionals are looking for uh, to outlast Justify at the mile-and-a-half distance.
2: Yeah, Justify isn't for me. Uh, No surprise there. Not going to be betting the favorite. He has looked really good still from what I was told. Yeah, he did five furlongs, a little breeze early in this week. It was executed in a pretty good time. Um, He is the class of this field, and I think that's obvious. His worst race is better than any other horse in this field's best race. We all kind of know that. But I think for me, there's going to be a lot of value in other horses um, we can kind of go through those if we want quickly. I don't think yeah, we need to if go. If you had
1: any insight, I mean, you don't have to cover every horse, and I don't think we're going to sit here and claim to be Chris Felica as the horse whisperer, or anything by uh, our, anyone's stretch of the imagination. But if there were certain horses that you wanted to highlight or offer a thought, I will say in regards to Justify, it was interesting to see uh, Bob Baffert's comments about the post position, number one, trying to deflect that being a death sentence. <laughs> uh, and then one of the other things that came up for me Uh, I know both Triple Crown races were previously run on sloppy tracks, but declining speed figures uh, for Justify in those two races, now trying to get its sixth win since the middle of February. But I won't steal your thunder if you had strong nuggets.
2: No, no. So, I mean, I guess just to go back to Justify there, you're you're pretty spot on with that. And I think, number one in a a race this long... if you're worried about your starting position, you're probably not that great of a horse. And a few of the other jockeys and trainers have come out and said that this week. They kind of made a little jab at Justify because Baffert was not thrilled with his, his post position. But he said, listen, we we're expecting it. Because the one thing about Justify that we've seen in the first two races, everything has been picture perfect. There has been zero adversity. He has had picture perfect runs. If you went to the first two races and you had the ability to just pick him up and place him on a track, every single inch of the run, he has been in perfect position. There's been zero adversity there and we saw him kind of getting hawked down late in the Preakness. So that's going to be another thing that he's got to overcome. I think there's a lot of closers in this race that do have a chance. The very first one, I can tell you, Hoffberg. absolutely drilled. By professional betters. There was some ten to one in your town, late Sunday night, early Bastard. Monday morning. You
1: bastards beat me to that number. I'll tell you that much.
2: Gone. So <laughs> we saw Hoffberg. We are on him in the Derby just as our value bet, and he came in seventh. But if you really go back, watch that race. He has a horrible time out of the gates. Gets bumped. He's in second to last, and he is just coming on like a bat out of hell in the Derby. He's actually trying to get through some. Horses that are slowing late. He finishes seventh. Um, he was runner up in the Florida Derby. I think when you're looking at this one, if you can get some fixed odd prices that are better than what his current track odds are, there's a good chance that you're going to want to hit that. 10 to 1 is long gone at this point. Um, but I think we'll have a better option to probably bet this race for you if you can't get Hoffberg um, at better than 4.5 to 1. And again, I think when you look at him, it goes back to the trainer, right? Bill Mott. He is not entering anybody in this race that he doesn't feel deserves to be in here. He took off the Preakness. It was for a reason. Um, and now he's back here at the Belmont. I think the style here is going to be pretty good. The key for Hofburg is if he's not at the back of the pack, if he's in that stalking position, he is going to have a real shot here. Um, they're bringing him in from Saratoga. So he's been training at Saratoga and he's looked fantastic. And so when you just listen to a lot of the comments from other jockeys, from other trainers, they keep going back to Hofberg and Vino Rosso. Hoffberg and Vino Rosso as both being really good training so far. And I think that takes us to Vino Rosso, the Todd Pletcher horse. He's another one you're going to want to look at. He's going to be the value horse. I think when everyone is looking to bet this race, they're going to have their $2 ticket on Justify. Uh, they're going to be looking at Bravazo as he finished great in the Preakness. I think you're going to be looking potentially at Tenfold, who had a nice Preakness run. So I think Vino Rosso is going to be that horse that offers a ton of value, uh, and he's going to be in the double digits. So I think that's another one you're going to want to key on also is, is Vino Rosso.
1: And Vino Rosso, actually the horse that uh, our guy Kentucky Derby, Jay, I believe tipped up in his article uh, on the Bet the Board website, uh, leading up to it, didn't quite get the run. For me, and I've learned this from working with you over the last couple of years, you may not get trainers or teams or players to say things, but actions oftentimes can tell you the underlying story. Yes. And for me, when it pertains to Justify, the fact that they pulled his stable mate Audible out of this fold suggests that, you know what, Audible may have been a better horse capable of pushing Justify leads me to believe that Justify probably a lot more vulnerable than the horse racing community wants to let on.
2: Without question, there was some uh, finagling there behind the scenes. Uh, Tenfold potentially has some ability here. He's a closer. Uh, Son of Curlin, who finished second at the Belmont. I think he's a, a real player in this as well. And then some other horses that probably aren't going to be a factor in terms of cashing tickets, but potentially... Creating some leverage for the horses that we mentioned, so you're going to have something like you know restoring hope and noble Indy. They're going to want to get out, and if they can get out and potentially challenge justify early on and make justify work early on, you're going to see the closers that we just listed: in vino rosso and tenfold um, and hofberg really have a shot in this race. That's the biggest thing. So we like hofberg. Uh, we like Vino Rosso as the value horse but I think our biggest bet from what I have seen so far is we're going to take no on the Triple Crown because there are a lot of horses that we like to beat Justify here and we like it so much that you know we've, we've, it's not a huge market right so there's a few places that have it and the limits are pretty limited so if you have the no Triple Crown bet that Um I think we took minus 120, minus 130. The other thing that we're going to be doing is taking the field because we just can't get enough down on the note for the triple crown. So we're going to be taking the field as well. So some sports books might have one option or the other. If you're a professional better listening to this, and there's plenty of those, and you need to get more money down, you're we're going with both of those options, um, and that's how we're betting this one.
1: It'd be interesting to see. I mean, I think I've seen about a dollar thirty out there, there on the... There's some 130 nope.
2: still out there. The interesting part to this is you would think you know, money is going to come in on Justify to win the Triple Crown. That This just doesn't seem to be a market where um, recreational bettors are hitting it. Professional bettors are going to be hitting the no Triple Crown and the field stuff. And so there's not going to be this massive, specifically with the no Triple Crown, it's more of a professional bet than a than recreational bet. So I don't think the market's going to move a ton, right? You would think you'd be able to wait this one out to the very, very end and get the best price. I don't know if that's going to be the case.
1: One thing I will say too, um, and I'm not going to make a case for justify in the least uh, to try and win this race. But for those folks that want to try and explore the idea that he's going to be able to win the triple crown, you're foolish probably is the best word to describe it to bet him to win. Look at the Preakness pricing and the way that those unfolded. You get so much recreational action that comes in on Justify, there is significantly more value on a horse like this going for the Triple Crown in the place and show pools than you're going to see in a typical race. I actually think, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, I wish I did in the Preakness, I'm pretty sure place paid the exact same price as his win number, and you only saw pennies on the dollar less for his show price at the Preakness, and all you had to do was finish in the top three.
2: For not being horse guys, and you can kind of tell, right? There's information, and there's one thing to get information. There's one thing to be a good better. There's another way that you have to bet things properly, right? That's the other element. It's not just having the side or the position. It's how to bet that side or position. And so this has been something that professional horse bettors have done for a long time. Anytime you have a smallish or smaller field and there's an overwhelming favorite, the pools get so distorted on win. There's just going to be a slew of $2 tickets, $4 tickets, $5 tickets on Justify, right? There's going to be people that are hell-bent on betting Justify. There's going to be another sector of people that say, hey, I'm going to be in attendance or, hey, I want to have a ticket for the potentially this being the 13th time that we have a Triple Crown. So they want that piece of history in their hand. And the win pool is going to get so distorted that you, you nailed it. You can effectively take place or show, place paid exactly the same price as the win ticket at the Preakness and Show paid, I think about twenty or thirty cents less, so a few pennies less. So effectively you're getting the same price for a top two or a top three than you are picking the winner. So if you're hell bent on betting Justify, uh, you're better off doing it in place or show.
1: Yeah, and as someone who bets NASCAR religiously every week, I'd love to be able to get the same price on a car to win uh, as I could top three. Little to say, my profit margins would increase substantially. So it's kind of the Belmont <laughs> the, breakdown. Uh,
2: the fade horse here.
1: Oh, I didn't want to cut you off. Look at you over there coming coming to the party packing heat. I
2: don't know. Listen, like, Gronkowski isn't very good. Um, but The horse,
1: not the horse, not the tight end, of course.
2: Correct. He's not very good, but Gronkowski is bred for distance here. He hasn't run in the first two legs. They've been training him specific for this, so I don't think he's going to be our fade horse here like he would have been in the Derby. I think you're looking at Noble Indy as your pure fade horse. He's going to be a speed horse. He's probably going to get out a little bit. I think he dies down, down the track a little bit, so that's that's likely who we're keying as our fade horse is is Noble Indy. Um and so far, the fade horse has been working pretty good. We had Mendelssohn
1: yeah. in the first, in the Derby. Uh, believe he is still running. <laughs> he might still be running alongside Diamond King from the Preakness as well. And who was our, was it Quip? Was Quip, our finished, horse? Dead. Quip. Yeah, Quip and, finished dead
2: last in the Preakness. And that was our fade horse in the Preakness. So, Noble Indy is who we're looking at fading here, once matchups post.
1: And uh, again, when you're exploring the horse markets, it's a different mentality. You're not just betting on a given horse. Oftentimes you want to identify who the weakest link is and look to try and fade them with reckless abandon, hoping that uh, they pick up the rear to the field. Speaking of picking up the rear of the field, uh, we have NBA game three Oof. pain on the horizon, and it's the Cleveland Cavaliers backed into a corner. Uh, you've seen money come in on the Cavs, uh, as the Warriors are a modest four point favorite at betonline.ag. Total in this game, anywhere from 215 to 217, depending on where you shop. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. I mean, what are your takeaways from what you've seen through the first two games of the finals?
2: They let a golden opportunity slip away in game one, and. Man, I hate to talk about sour grapes here, but man, did he get hosed. I have never seen LeBron get hosed so poorly. Like, I've never seen a superstar athlete get hosed like that. There was four calls in the fourth quarter where they weren't just like 50-50 calls. They were obvious calls. And he got absolutely screwed. And I was stunned to see them compete that way in game one. It certainly led a lot of sheep to the slaughterhouse in game two thinking that was going to be able to you're gonna be able to replicate that. For me, I, I have seen pro money on Cleveland here. The market has adjusted so much in basketball it's ridiculous. overall like basketball in general has been tough to bet for a lot of professionals this year. you've had the schedule change, which has removed a ton of spots and situations from the mix that we kind of rely on. And then in the last, 12 to 18 months, maybe even 24 months, sportsbooks have gotten much smarter with how they deal these games. About 18 months ago, you could have had Cleveland there would have been professional betters and groups fighting when this opened five to take Cleveland plus three minus 20 in the first half. even Correct. Even two and a half even. And now you're looking at pick them for the first half. And so mentally, professional betters are having a tough time saying, hey, while the spot is great, while they may cash this, it's just mentally it's a hurdle getting over the fact that we could have took three, could have took two and a half last year, and now we're, now we're betting into this game where it's a pick them. Now certainly you would think if Cleveland has a chance, it's going to be early in this game. If Golden State comes out and jabs them early, I, I don't know how much fight we'll see from Cleveland. I said this probably two weeks ago on, on Twitter. The finals matchup was in the Western Conference. Those were the two best teams Houston and Golden State Houston Houston's likely winning a championship if Chris Paul doesn't go down with a hamstring injury uh, and that's just the reality of the situation it's unfortunate to see that happen this was never going to be competitive the matchup was bad stylistically it was bad Houston just can't defend and I'm sorry Cleveland just can't defend what they were trying to do if you watch any of the tape or watch any of these games they were trying to steal how Houston defended Golden State and it just doesn't work without Clint Capella. You've seen Larry Nance Jr., you've seen Kevin Love try to employ the same tactics where they're going to come up top, try to trap Steph as he comes up the court, try to get it out of his hands. The problem is, neither of those guys can stick in front and it's leaving Steph Curry either a wide open three, or he's able to drive and get by them. Capella could at least provide some athleticism, some Lateral quickness to where Curry is forced to shoot over if he's going to take that step back three, or he's going to drive to the lane. It's going to be contested. They just don't have the pieces defensively, and that's really what this comes down to. Offensively, I liked what Cleveland did early on in Game One. Right, they knew this couldn't be a track meet. They knew that that you can't run with Golden State, but they were strategically taking their spots when it was available to get a quick, easy bucket. They did so. Game two, they didn't do that. They really tried to slow this thing down to a halt. The other thing we saw was Golden State kind of came out with a game plan in game one that wasn't overly beneficial when without Iggy in the lineup. Game two, you noticed they made a defensive adjustment. They had Draymond Green trap LeBron. They threw doubles at LeBron. When he got into the post, they trapped him and forced it out of his hands. And I know he shot fifty percent and had a near triple double, but it was a much less efficient twenty-nine points than when he went for fifty-one eight and eight in game one. And now you're looking at Iggy being back for game game three. It looks like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I want to make a case as much as anybody to try and back the Cavs here. I won't be on it. Uh, I don't think in, in any capacity. And when you look at the series, the real the only real drama and suspense that remains is will Golden State win the series in a sweep or will they close it out at Oracle in Game 5 at home? But I guess the other question I have to ask you, Payne, before we close the book on an NFL NFL NBA season here uh, up at Bet the Board, where do we think, I know BetOnline.ag had odds on this, LeBron James ultimately ends up when we reconvene for uh, our football discussion in early August. Whew. It's tough to say. Right.
2: I mean, certainly, I saw the 76ers favored there. There was speculation that he was checking out schools in the area. And it certainly keeps him in the Eastern Conference, which, top to bottom, isn't as formidable as the West. 76ers have all the cap space in the world. What I am trying to plot in my mind is the shooters that you're going to have to put around him and Ben Simmons. I think it stunts Ben Simmons' growth a little bit. I think it's difficult to figure out who's going to be the man there. I, I the fit doesn't feel as good there. It I am mean, try, trying
1: to play. I'm trying to play this out like with everything that Philadelphia's invested. Like, if you have LeBron James, Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, and Joel Embiid out there, like, is that po- can that possibly work in any capacity?
2: Who's space on your floor is, is the big question.
1: I mean, do you have to resign JJ Redick, I would think, and he's about 107 years old at this he, point. He
2: becomes you'd need shooters. That that becomes priority, and I think at this stage like I mean, Marco Fultz is probably coming off the bench for you. Um because what's you, Kyle, don't, what's you don't Kyle need him to handle the ball.
1: What's Kyle Corver's contract availability? Maybe po- poach him from Cleveland, bring him back there. There you go.
2: The the interesting aspect to this, I think, is where the other guys go. Where does Paul George go? Where does he land? It seems almost certain he's going to be destined for La La Land. uh, What does Houston do to take that next step? And the question that no one's proposed, and I'm not quite sure why, is what does Kevin Durant do? Because Kevin Durant is a free agent, and I
1: think... Hold on, you mentioned that, and there was actually a story that broke this morning from Sports Illustrated, speculation that Durant would explore going down the coast to join the Lakers.
2: Well, there's already... I don't... Man, I hate to talk about Kevin Durant like this. If you don't know Kevin Durant by now, he is—he uh, cares a lot what other people think about him. And he's certainly going to opt out. And he's certainly going to, I think, if there is potential there, to take the most money possible. He's already kind of taken these pay cuts the last two years. Now. I don't feel bad for him. He's making a lot of money. Uh, but he cares what people think. And it's clear now public sentiment doesn't feel like he's earned any of these championships. So now it becomes this legacy point. He's got a home out in L.A. He likes L.A. Uh, You could see that potential where you pair him with Paul George. I think that could make some sense. So No one's really talking about KD moving, but he is a free agent. Um, He wants to test the market and see what's out there. He wants to feel loved. There are a lot of organizations, though, from what I'm told, that are pretty turned off by Kevin Durant. Um, Actions, how he handled free agency, some of them just being salty with how the league's changed. Because of him, uh, so not every organization's in love with Kevin Durant as crazy as that's going to sound.
1: What a weird, weird time! Uh, I know we talk about the NBA offseason probably being the most exciting, uh, given the fact that it takes one major domino to go and really shifts the balance of power. Uh, meanwhile, you have to think the Boston Celtics will be very relevant in the discussion to win the NBA championship. But Houston, either way, Houston can-
2: needs a wing player. I think they could have won the championship this year if Chris Paul was healthy, but I. I you know, Chris Paul's got one, one, maybe two more runs in him to be elite. They're gonna if they can get one more wing player, they're gonna be really dynamic.
1: I mean, it's uh, we've seen it. it I mean, it's the haves and the have-nots. It's a four to five horse race. Yep. LeBron'll go somewhere, figure out where KD lands, and basically, it'll be the usual suspects vying for the Larry O'Brien Trophy. It hasn't been the usual suspects when we shift our attention uh, to the ice where it's the Capitals looking to close out the Vegas Golden Knights in Game 5. Washington, of course, victorious in three straight after spotting the Knights Game 1 of the series. They're losing that one 6-4. You as a diehard Penguins fan, I know you haven't... <laughs> Did you well, really just ahead. bring up hockey? I-, I mean, I have to get at least a little bit of hockey in here. Oof. i got to get a little bit of hockey in you're here. Gonna it gonna is- be, you're going
2: Jake- to be asking and answering. Let's go. It
1: it did take place in my uh, yard. I mean, I feel like you don't have to watch. You have strong feelings that you didn't want to see the Capitals win the Stanley Cup as a Penguins fan, but you knew Ovi was probably going to get one at some point in his career.
2: Got the monkey off their back. They go from the uh, not-so-lovable losers to winning one. Um, But as soon as they beat Pittsburgh, there was a question. I mean, are they going to be happy finally getting over that hump, getting the monkey off their back? You know, and, and I thought they may stumble early on in their next series, but Listen, they're talented. This I think this is over. I mean, it was a nice run for Vegas. I'm kind of upset though that they didn't finish it off. But there's just they don't have quite have the talent yet.
1: No, you look player for player. There's no Alexander Ovechkin equivalent donning a golden knights sweater. Mark Andre Fleury had been superhuman through the first three rounds yep. of the playoffs, really mask the deficiencies that the Knights have dealt with all season long on their blue line. Uh, and you saw that get exacerbated in game three for those folks that watch Shea Theodore turning the puck over twice and all the bounces that had gone the night's way throughout the course of the regular season injuries notwithstanding where they dealt, you know, with three to four goalies early on in the season. You know, James Neal, a wide open net hits the post with a chance to get a one nothing lead in the caps of show. They're a tough team to battle back from. I uh, disagree, actually, with the market that's trended in Vegas's direction, thinking that the series goes back to Washington uh, for a pivotal game six. I said the Caps would win this series in six beforehand. Uh, I think the price probably too much to pass up, uh, and it really is starting to feel like the Knights who lo- lost game one against the Jets and then boat, ra- boat raced, uh, beat them in four straight. Uh, I think Washington would be foolish to try and let the Knights hang around, let them build some momentum. Uh, I really believe, much to my chagrin, I'm going to see Alexander Ovechkin, Brayden Holpe, and company Parade around T-Mobile come Thursday night, hoisting the Stanley Cup uh, at the Golden Knights expense. You're going to the game. Yeah, I will be there. I know the ticket market's really depressed. A lot of folks looking to unload, and shame on some of the Vegas fans who had expectations like or felt entitled that this should happen. Not so much in regard to the tickets, but just the behavior on Twitter. You're an expansion team. Your your win total or point total is sixty eight and a half before the season. You're five hundred to one. Enjoy the ride. Don't come out and attack the Twitter account. Don't attack the players. You're not sure when you're gonna be back here. There's a lot of franchises that have never even had a chance to play for this. That's the one thing that's driven me nuts, and I hope. And I really do hope, and I'm not sure it's going to happen, Uh, that regardless of the result on Thursday night, if it's the last time we see the Golden Knights play a home game in the 2017-18 season, uh, that this team gets a standing ovation for what they've done to galvanize the city. Uh, The players have really embraced the role and what started under uh, the umbrella of tragedy with the one October shooting. I mean, this team has kind of embodied everything you need to get to this point in the season with teamwork, veteran leadership, uh, and really showing that the sum of its parts is better than any individual contribution.
2: So I'm looking at the price right now, Vegas... About a dollar fifty favorite, plus one thirty on the return for Washington. So, live betting. Let's say Washington gets the early goal. What are we looking at for price there, middle of the first period?
1: You're going to see the uh, Caps move to about a dollar fifteen, a dollar twenty favorite, assuming this is where the number closes. Man, I feel like it's better to wait. You may, you may honestly be better served to try and do that because I can't tell you, having seen the crowd, uh, the Knights have been. Uh, exceptional excuse me scoring the first goal and getting the fans behind him if they give up an early goal to the Capitals uh, you could see the win getting taken out of the sails and this thing could kind of crater uh, much like the Knights were able to do on the road taking the air out of the building at the MTS Center against the Jets I think this Capitals team knows you don't want to let a team off the deck and when you have a chance to go for the kill uh, this is where it happens so uh, I think it's over but I I like that mentality thinking that Washington gets the first goal you may have to lay a little bit of a price yeah yeah. But the advantage works in your favor there instead of running to grab a dollar thirty or so. There you go. So, all right, my friend. Uh, I feel like we've run the gamut, and this has been a uh, time to put a bow on what I feel has been our most successful campaign to date uh, since we know our uh, fiscal year sports calendar doesn't work necessarily in conjunction uh, with the regular calendar. But branched out this season into a college football that was well-received on Wednesdays, talked a little horse racing, had some phenomenal guests, brought our... High level of coverage that everyone expects from us in regards to the NFL and uh, really excited about some of the surprises we may be able to unveil uh, when the calendar flips to August and we start up again with college football and NFL previews.
2: Absolutely. And it's all due to our loyal listeners. Obviously, we would not be doing these if it wasn't for you guys. So we appreciate the support. We're going to continue churning out the content. This is our first World Cup preview. So yep. we're going to keep time. expanding what we do. And hopefully you enjoy it. And if you do, leave uh, leave a five star review for us. Leave a nice little comment. We're gonna be doing something nice for people uh, as football season gets here. All right, um, we're still still the little guy, right? We're still doing this on our own. We're still doing this by them, by ourselves. We don't have this massive network behind us. So your support is greatly appreciated, and we're gonna return that favor. So. Leave a five-star review. Leave a comment. Every couple months or so, we're just going to randomly pick someone that's left a five-star review and a comment and we're just going to hit you with like a bet the board swag pack, whatever it is, $100 gift card, bunch of swag, all that stuff. So we're going to be doing that as a big thank you for all your support. So uh, make sure you get the five-star reviews and leave a little comment and we'll, uh, we'll throw everyone's name into a little bucket that does that and every couple months or so, we'll, we'll give out a gift.
1: And I, I think Payne, I might start to sound like a flight attendant when I go into this. Uh, as we go into you know a time that's very interesting for the sports betting space, you're going to have a lot of chances, a lot of opportunities to digest content uh, from a number of sources. Uh, when you make those choices, hey. Uh, We've been the brand as you said, Payne, kind of built, bootstrapped up. Uh, We've grown much faster than I ever anticipated, and a lot of thanks goes out to our listeners. So we can only hope they share the gospel. Uh, They continue to form their friends and family that may want to start betting sports legally in markets like Delaware, New Jersey, and Mississippi, or explore some of the... uh, Corner bookmaker options or, of course, uh, continue to deposit uh, at betonline.ag that they preach our gospel and realize uh, if there's one way to try and get sports betting content from proven winners, uh, they know they can find that here at Bet the Board. It wouldn't be fitting if I didn't say this. Let's wrap this up. All right, we'll wrap this up. Uh, I'm sure uh, you're ready to start your Billions watch party for the season finale. It'll commence in about 72 hours. I got some more World Cup stuff to do. So, Watching, watching Payne, the
2: Raisin Nationals right now as you uh, deliver this sermon.
1: Yeah, Raisin Nationals. Uh, boy, the dog days of summer have really uh, come home for you. So, You can follow Payne on Twitter at Payne Insider. I am Todd Furman. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Todd Furman. Our soccer guest, who I encourage you to follow throughout the course of the World Cup at Mark O'Hare. Uh, and while he... Didn't join us today. We know he offers a lot of valuable perspective from the sports book side. You can follow Dave Mason at Dave Mason B O L. Enjoy your summer vacations. Hit those football, both college and pro annuals, and we'll be back with you in early August. So be sure to tune in at Bet the Board Pod Twitter account as well. We'll make some of those announcements about when you can see those previews and start betting those win totals and all the other prop markets that are available. Hopefully in the meantime, we'll see you at the window.